Digital Gonzo, episode 98, dated Thursday the 6th of September 2012, The Legend of Aang, book 3, Fire. Water. My grandmother used to tell me stories about the old days, how the four nations once lived in harmony, how everything changed once the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar mastered all four elements. Only he could stop the ruthless firebenders. But when the world needed him most, he disappeared. Nobody had seen him for a hundred years. Until my brother and I found him, an airbender named Aang. The problem is, this avatar is still a kid. And even though his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. The Fire Nation will do anything to capture Aang before he masters all four elements. So I must keep him safe until he's ready to fulfill his destiny. My brother thinks I'm crazy, but I believe Aang can save the world. Welcome back to Digital Gonzo for what might be the most exhaustive and in-depth series of reviews of the Avatar series available on this internet. To our many new listeners who might have just started delving into the Digital Gonzo back catalogue, may I recommend the following shows. Episodes 12 to 17, The Star Wars Saga. Episodes 19, 20 and 22, The Back to the Future trilogy, Which Will Make Your Brain Hurt. Episodes 28 and 29, The Zombie Survival Guide and World War Z, which will scare the poop out of you, but also prepare you for a zombie attack of any kind. Episodes 54 to 62, The Harry Potter Film Series. Episodes 74 and 79, the first two Alien films, plus 82 is Alien Resurrection, and we actually go ballistic regarding how stupid that movie gets. That's huge fun episode and we recently covered all the Batman films but from that came the original audio drama Batman Breakdown which may well be the best thing I've ever done it's an hour long and features Dan and Sharon here and I heartily recommend everyone take a listen and spread it around because a lot of people's hard work went into that one and I'm very proud of how it turned out so Batman Breakdown it was episode 90 and remember, you can swing by the main Gonzo Planet website and look for the complete back catalogue list in the About Us tab. And of course, you can join us in the coming weeks after the Avatar shows for the seven-part investigative series into three films that changed my life, The Lord of the Rings. Joining me tonight to discuss the third season of Avatar, Daniel Floyd, Pixar animator and high-pitched voice of the Extra Credits animated gaming industry lectures now playing on Penny Arcade TV. Hello. Freshly back from PAX. Yes. Was it good? It was absolutely awesome. Joshua Garrity, podcaster for the consistently in-depth video gaming podcast Kane and Rince, and creator of Gonzo Planet's Animation Archives. Hello there. And from the Gonzo Planet community, Sharon Shaw, Jerome McIntosh, and Dwayne Griffiths. Hello. Good day, Hotman. <laughs> good day, Hotman. Good evening. 
Good evening, Hotman. If you've got this far, you should know by now that there are going to be massive spoilers for the entirety of Book 3, including how The Legend of Aang ends, so listen on only if you know already or don't mind that fact. So once again, we're going to cover this one episode by episode, considering the epic events of this season and the three hours of raw footage we ended up with last week, it promises to once again be a super detailed and weighty discussion. So, episode one is The Awakening. Right, so it's been quite a while since uh, we left off Team Avatar, um, and uh, Aang's woken up, and he's got hair all of a sudden. How shocking. And at first he thinks he's been captured by the Fire Nation, but it's later revealed that uh, Team Avatar, along with uh, uh, the the, uh, Southern Water Tribe, men have uh, captured a Fire Nation ship and they're disguising themselves. Um, What this episode really focuses on is um, Aang's pride and how he feels like he's failed somehow because, uh, and he has, uh, Ba Sing Se, uh, they lost. And he feels that now that the world thinks he's dead, he thinks that everyone thinks that he's failed them and the Avatar has failed them and um, it's about him trying to come to terms with the fact that he needs to just recover from this and move on but he's not letting himself he's just as blindly furious as Zuko in the first series in this one there's quite a lot of parallels drawn between them oh absolutely there's that really good shot where it's um, got half of Aang's face on the screen and then it cuts to Zuko, and you have his uh, face right next to where Aang's was. It's just this nice parallel. The conflict between the two is great. And he, in comparison, has gotten everything he's ever wanted, apparently. He's, he's being venerated by the Fire Nation for apparently killing the Avatar, something that Azula very slyly uh, pushed over onto him. He's gotten his father's approval at long last. He's, he's no longer banished. He's at his father's right-hand side you finally get to see the Fire Lord as well. And I think the thing that struck me when it finally happened was how much like Zuko he looks. Is he with I mean, a scar as well? He's got this... It's not really a gentle face, but it's a very normal face. You'd imagine that, you know, after all this holding back, that he'd have this, you know, terrifying, like, really, you know, ravaged, angry face or something like that. Just something that's straight-out scary. But he's the sort of person who you might imagine sat behind a desk somewhere. He just happens to be this exalted Phoenix King. It should be said also that the show is looking so good by this point, like mm. compared to where it began. Like, take a season one episode and stand it side by side with any season th- season three episode, and it is amazing the progression and the quality yeah. that we're starting to see at this point. Absolutely. I really like the uh, interaction between Katara and her father in this mm. episode. Because um, Katara is, at first you don't really understand what's going on. She's seeming to be very uh, angry and very short with her father. And um, Aang even asks her, have you got a problem with your dad? And she's like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. As if, like, what she was doing before was totally normal. Um, but it, it, you come to learn later on that Katara is somewhat taking out her frustration about her father leaving the uh, Southern Water Tribe alone and leaving them directionless out on him now. Um, it, she opens up and they embrace later and I think they come to terms with it, but it's it's kind of rough seeing Katara treat her dad that way. 
It's that wonderful conversation that she starts out, you know, extremely angry about the way that uh, Ang's left them and then just sort of, you know, gone off when clearly people need him. And it just, it transforms as she's speaking into, you know, she's talking about her father. I really love Katara this season. Like, we've seen a lot of her being strong and we've seen her being, like, kind of the core of the group. But we really see, like, a lot of emotion from her in this season. We see her at her most angry and her most vengeful and at her most, like, sometimes over-mothering of the group. And I, don't know, I feel like we there's a lot more complexity to her this season, and I really like it. So it's a good show for getting you back on track and, and showing a neat reversal in the, the characters. But also, the Fire Nation move in on the uh, Earth City, and it's an occupation. It's, it, it's something that, you know, had they succeeded the last time wouldn't be happening and so it's like the Fire Nation are now closing in and the stakes are raising even higher it's also that seems great as well because um, they do close-ups on all the Earth Nation citizens that we had mm. one-off episodes with yep. so you see the mother with her child and the That's girl that Zuko dated Jin. for that episode yeah um, and that's like, oh, God, we went through all this stuff with these people, and now their lives, you know, are have been ruined by the Fire Nation. Oh, uh, actually, speaking of Jin, somebody did uh, post a message saying that they think Jin is a better uh, fit for Zuko than May. Uh, anyone want to talk about that? I, I kind of see that. I, I can see why somebody might say that, but I think you, you get enough... Um, insight into Zuko and May's relationship later on yeah. to understand why um, he's good for her and she's good for him. If that makes sense. You could imagine that if he hadn't, if he would have sided with his uncle and the Avatar, mm. he might have ended up with her. Ah, good point. Because he was ready to live his life in Barsing Say. Uh, Jin was a very nice girl who may have been. Uh, more than a little overwhelmed with everything that comes with Zuko. Uh, May, at least, is more prepared. Yeah, that's true. Given where um, Zuko ends up going and, and who he ends up becoming at the end of this, he would need a partner who was suited to political life. Yeah. But not just that, but the immense amount of emotion that comes with that lad. Yeah. I, I, I think, what well, the fact that Jin hadn't noticed that Zuko was sitting on an atom bomb of emotion and was just like, oh, you're really kind of handsome. It's like, okay, he's, he's, there's more there. Though. That's true. She was going on a date with a nice tea shop boy. She might not have been quite prepared for Fire Lord. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, he is. He's the Fire Lord. Oh, speaking of which, I did some reading, and in my daughter's... Uh, like preschooler books on Avatar, which were written around the time of the first series, um, there was a piece of information which I had no idea about before, and that was that the Fire Lord originated as the chief of the Fire Sages. You know those guys who watch over the Fire Temple. And several centuries ago, the chi uh, the chief sage decided he wanted to preside over the Fire Nation. Now, I don't know whether they actually had a system of government in place that required deposing at that point, but... The Fire Lord is a relatively new position in terms of where he is there. And speaking of which, Fire Lord Ozai, since considering the flashback, has only been Fire Lord for what? Six, seven years? Six years. Six years? Five years. So relative to, to like the 112 or so that Sozin was... 78 year reign for Sozin. He was 102 when he died. 
His son Azulon reigned for 75 years and was apparently murdered by Zuko's mother Ursa at age 95. It's, it's insane how, how short his reign was relative to his father and grandfather, and yet how he just decided within those years, you know what, I'm just going to torch everything. Actually, we'll talk about that in a, in a bit because there's a, there's a, the, the Avatar and the Fire Lord is a great episode to talk about that for. Next one, the headband. This is the one with Hotman in it a lot. Flamio, Hotman! Flamio? Mm-hmm. Which reminds me, this match is brought to you by our sponsor, Flamio Instant Noodles. Noodliest noodles in the United Republic. Um, it's kind of like Footloose. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's very much of... Ang thinks he knows what the Fire Nation might be like, but he has no idea, really. Mm. Turns out to be this very rigid, high-class, mind your P's and Q's sort of society. It sort of combines most of the negative aspects of Japan and China. Mm. Well, I watching it, um, the scenes where uh, um, Ang was in the band and he decided to dance all of a sudden, mm. and then the guy, uh, the teacher, decided to call him out on it. It reminded me of um, a scene in. Uh, of all films, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, mm. where the uh, German kid is being taught by this new teacher. And the way these kids were being taught, it felt very much like Nazi Germany, where they're being fed exactly what the government wants them to hear mm. and fed exactly what, you know, the kind of attitude these kids should have all the time. And this Fuhrer is about to commit genocide, so ultimately they... they need to be prepared to worship the Fire Lord and his glorious regime, no matter what he does. Well, they even lie about the uh, attack on the uh, uh, airbenders. Mm. They claim that they had some kind of airbending army, but they don't have a military at all. So, But this is a key one to show that not everyone in the Fire Nation uh, is evil. And, in fact, most people in the Fire Nation actually aren't evil at all. They're just regular people who are under a rather oppressive regime. And the kids, specifically, uh, are all good-hearted. And the part where they all put on the headband at once to protect Aang and to to help him get away shows that there there is a solidarity there within them and that all they need is the right guidance and they will be perfectly in tune with the new world that Aang and Zuko eventually set up. We need to talk about Wang Fire. Because... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know you can get so- powder for that, Josh. <laughs> um, Sokka um, pretending to be Aang's father. <laughs> oh yes, gotta love the beard. One of the funniest moments in the entire series. This is my wife, Sapphire. Fire. And just the sight of Katara heavily try- pretending to be heavily pregnant as well <laughs> brought her. Uh, what was that for? Was that just because it was the only way she could make herself look old enough to be Aang's mother? I think so. But I mean, ultimately, the beard. Where did it come from? <laughs> Where did it go? And he pulls it back out again. He keeps it. Oh, he loves that beard. <laughs> Don't you worry, Mr. Headmaster. I'll straighten this boy out something fierce. Young man, as soon as we get home, you're gonna get the punishment of a lifetime. It's like those old um, kung fu masters you see in the 
kung fu movies where they're constantly stroking these big long yeah. dudes. Or Pai Mei from Kill Bill. Yes, yeah, that's who it reminded me of. But, yeah, as you know, he does believe in the power of stuff, so clearly that beard helps him to get into character. Yeah, I mean, this is something I noticed, actually. For, for the amount of heavy stuff that goes on in this series, it's also one of the funniest. Yeah. <laughs> we do start seeing that Zuko's still pretty furious. I, I like that... I mean, he has spent so long thinking to himself, if I can just catch the Avatar, that is going to fix everything. So like, Aang has just basically come to represent his only hope for happiness. He, is, he literally has everything he hoped catching Aang would accomplish, and he is just as angry and confused as before. Hmm. So I, I really love seeing it's, that in him. The it's also scene. The, uh, where you first meet Combustion Man. Mm. the uh, guy after... Also, the scene where Zuko goes to see Iroh and he's just... Because you haven't... This is the first time you've seen him since what's happened to him. And he's just sit, been locked away in this cage, let his hair grow out, and Zuko goes to visit him. And he blows up at him in his frustration. And the scene where he just turns away from him. Mm-hmm. It's quite heart-wrenching. Now, this... As it happened, they'd uh, written into the uh, story that Iroh was, at this point for several episodes, going to be effectively taking on a vow of silence uh, because of what had happened. And so when Marco died at the tail end of um, season two, this actually kind of played in well for them because it not only did it mean that they didn't have to immediately introduce another Iroh engaging in lively conversation with people, uh, but that it gave them time to come to terms with what had happened. And when they brought in Greg Baldwin to do the voice of um, Iroh from then on, I think it's, it's many episodes in, so it feels right that there should be this sort of almost like a period of respect. Yeah. He does do an awesome job, though. Yeah. Okay, uh, next episode, The Painted Lady. Sokka is kind of only concerned with the mission at this point. He has his massive schedule. Um, he's trying to keep to it, and he's all about, like, let's, you know, get on, move on. I don't care about these people in this fishing town who look like they're about to, you know, die from disease and starvation. Let's just get out of here. Whereas Katara is not willing to do that she's right look these people need our help isn't that what we're meant to be doing Mm. isn't that our role aren't we meant to be helping people like this and i liked that she 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 stood up to soccer as well because uh there's a point where soccer tries to confront her about her about it and then she just says no i will never leave people behind like this i will always help them it's a, it's a better indication of the Mass Effect-style decision-making than the Great Divide. It's interesting that this Fire Nation village looks literally no better off than most occupied Earth Nation villages. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering why that is. But like, like they're ep- getting mistreated just as much by their own nation. In this episode, you get to see the way the Fire Nation's need to advance and their industrial mindset has affected some of the people their own people mm. to the point where they just don't care as long as they're advancing they essentially they in the episode they view it as a favor that they've been allowing these people to live in this in the swamp mm. this is starting to sound a lot like north korea yeah <laughs> The way that they spend, uh, the government just spends so much money on the military and stuff like that, but ignoring the working class entirely. 
That's, that's actually what I'd, I'd had that thought about the previous episode with the part you mentioned about Aang kind of breaking into dance during the little band scene when the teacher says, I know we're all sometimes so moved by our love for our nation and our leader that we just cannot help ourselves, but try to restrain yourself. Mm. I mean, that is such a disturbing line. Also, Alex, I tweeted this at you earlier. I am almost 100% certain that Sokka's schedule is the studio animation production sheet, production schedule sheet. Uh, is it true? It is. Nice. <laughs> Did they have to poop and eat at the same time? <laughs> they, actually, uh, they actually shared toilets with the SpongeBob team. Brilliant. They didn't have their own. It's a reverse Scooby-Doo episode in that they have to become the monster to actually see justice done. So they are the ghost, the person behind the ghost, and the damn kids. And the Fire Nation would have gotten away with it too. Unlike Scooby-Doo, though, the painted lady turns out to be real. And then we've got the crazy guy who changes hats. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just saw you change! Soccer's always in the right in this one for a change, and Katara has it wrong. She keeps trying to help in small ways, but doesn't see the bigger picture that Sokka sees. And it ends up just causing more trouble. I don't know. I, I feel like Sokka is being a bit too... Uh, he's a bit too concerned with the bigger picture. They they have time to help these people, and Katara can see that. Um, I think Sokka's kind of making excuses for why they can't take action. Uh, I was talking about the bit where they destroy the factory, and that just brings the Fire Nation down to get their ass, because they think they've stolen their supplies. Mm-hmm. And that just makes things a bit worse. If they'd have left at that point, not knowing that that was going to happen, they'd have come and just destroyed the village. Ultimately, they could have uh, just said to them, made a note of the village and said, right, well, we'll come back here once we've won and you know, fix this place up because the Fire Nation will be transformed from within. But there was no telling that they would win. They had to ultimately sow small seeds just in case. And feasibly, they could have come back and everybody could have starved to death. Yeah. No. no, I mean, if everyone's died of yellow fever, they'll, they'll have a, a useless spot on a map. Laying on the point of me talking about morals of things as well, this is obviously the green episode, the environmentally friendly mm. episode. But it is wonderful to see the uh, benders all working in, in conjunction with each other. Uh, when they clear all the crap out of the river at the same time with Toph and Katara and Ang all working together, it's, it's, it's quite a sight. It's the sort of thing that makes you you think that these guys could actually clean up the world, given enough manpower. And, significantly, this is like that episode where Zuko helps out the family, uh, but at the end, when the the entire crowd turns on them, Zuko never had a soccer to stand in front of him and say, Hey, I think they did a pretty good job, and you should be thanking them. one, Soccer's Master. The great Robert Patrick. This is the episode where Soccer is starting to feel really down about his uh, his contribution. Uh, con- oh my god. Just make it up. <laughs> his contributions to Team Avatar and he feels like he's not as special as everyone else on the team. He's just witnessed uh, Ang, Toph and Katara uh, put out this fire that's been caused by this huge meteorite that's just fallen out of the sky. And he's 
trying to, you know, figure out, okay, I need to make myself more useful to you guys. And so they suddenly see this ad for uh, Swordmaster, who's played by Robert Patrick. Mm-hmm. And um, it's really great uh, seeing uh, Sokka uh, complete all these tasks that the Swordmaster gives him, but doing it in his own unique way. So it's it's kind of it feels very similar to the episode in season one with Boomy, um, with you know how he was teaching Ang to be a mad genius, and it's almost like uh, Sokka's applying that same uh, approach to everything yeah. he's being given uh, by the Swordmaster. One of the things you really get to see as well is how much the group misses Sokka when he's not around. Yeah, where they're trying to be funny and failing. Yeah, Katara is not funny. <laughs> There's no one to tell uh, them what to do. Uh, uh. Toph's funny. Although, actually, interestingly enough, and this is something that's slightly unresolved, Toph clearly likes soccer in a, a little way. I don't, I don't know quite how romantic it is, but she does blush when she uh, uh, talk, talks about him and thinks about him when he's not there and when no one else is looking. And, and you know, also, that kind of leads on from where she thinks he rescued her when she fell in the water at the Yeah. I think, so I think she actually really likes him. So obviously, with the whole Suki thing, that's that's kind of a, a you know an unresolved issue there. I'm just going to say we don't know who Lin Bei Fong's father is. So yeah, I've just said putting that. It out there. And the fact that her surname is Bei Fong suggests that Toph wasn't married when she had her. Ah. Hmm. Okay, right, well then it's still not absolutely resolved, but uh, it's interesting that they would set up that particular, huh, <laughs> interesting that they would set up that particular romantic situation and then not resolve it. In this one where uh, soccer love shopping, they mm-hmm. find uh, the battle armour Ang. Yep. <laughs> Apparently yes. the outfit was inspired that. by the toy design with yep. Windsword, which was yep. never approved. Yeah, the whole <laughs> because the, it's dumb. Not only was that um, that ridiculous outfit armor thing that they're uh, based on their frustrations with dealing with the toy companies, which I mentioned several episodes ago, uh, but there's also various bits of, of uh, anime that they've never really understood that are up there, like the the giant one single hand is actually uh, out, of, out of Soul Calibur, the nightmare character, and that like, huge, evil, deformed hand. And then there's just like, one shoulder pad, loads of spikes and chains, which is actually straight out of Spawn. But it's just it's incredibly asymmetrical. It looks really uncomfortable and unwieldy, and it doesn't make any sense. If you, um, if you look in the art book, they have little notes around all the drawings, for the, the concept of drawings, and some animation notes for the big armor suit, including things like tassels blowing in a wind that comes from nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> Sokka gets to ca- make his space sword which disappears later on and I re- again really hope that Sokka gets to go back and look for that thing because it was hard won and it's very important to him as well it's, it's sort of representative of the fact that he's unique within the group this is a, a metal that comes from somewhere off this planet and it's, it's kind of symbolic of the unusual nature of, of his contribution at the end you get the hint that uh, Master Piandao is something to do with the White Lotus Society which was actually um, mentioned and explored in, back in the uh, Earth season and when they close the doors 
you get the lion turtle, which again won't become relevant at all until the very, very end. But that is hinted at there. It's mentioned in the library, and uh, in, if you, you know, go back and watch the pilot, it's right there at the very, very beginning. But the lion turtle was always going to be part of Aang's coming together. I wonder, has Sokka been, like, a fi- in being given that uh, pie show little um, piece, has he been, like, is that induction? Yeah. yeah, is that induction or like is he in? Or uh... I think that's more sort of. But if you're smart enough to follow this clue, then um, it will lead you to to somewhere that you can then be, um, you know, permitted into. I think he's probably a bit young to be actually um, admitted to the White Lotus at the moment. But later on, he could definitely be a possible. Looking at where the the, the flashbacks in Korra, looking at where he ends up. Um, he's on the council, so I would strongly suspect that he becomes involved with the White Lotus later on. Number five is the beach. Did you say this was a psychopath holiday? <laughs> yes, I said this is like psychotic yeah. royal family beach vacation. <laughs> That's the one, yes. This, this might be my what? favorite episode of the entire season, honestly. Really? Yeah. What it is, it's, it's like, it's basically Tales of Bossing Say, but for the enemy team. There's like no major plot development. Yes! It's, just, yeah. it's just a better understanding of who these people are. And, mm. it's re- and it highlights that even within the Fire Nation, these kids are weird. Like, yeah, <laughs> get, like you've got all the normal kids having their beach party and all that, and then when these guys go to play volleyball, they like are at war. <laughs> when, when they go to a party, they are they have no idea how to act. So, like, we are the perfect party guests. We arrive right on time because we are very punctual. That's a sharp outfit, Chan. Careful, you could puncture the hull of an Empire-class Fire Nation battleship, leaving thousands to drown at sea. Because it's so sharp. Love it. I love getting to. I love their beach conversation where we basically get to understand each one of them a little bit better. We Zuko kind of gets closer to the source of what's bothering him so much. We get to a little bit more into Tylee and May, who we've not really gotten any kind of understanding of why they are the way they are. We get to see a great deal about Azula. Just She doesn't really have much of a confession on the beach, but we definitely see how very bizarre she is in normal company. And yeah. that she has no social skills whatsoever. At all. No. I, love, I love her line to Tyler. Like, well, that sounds really shallow and stupid. Let's try it. <laughs> hey there, sweet sugar cakes. How are you liking this party? <laughs> I particularly like Chan and Ranjan in this. Because I tend to sort of label folks like this Chet whenever they turn up to a cake. <laughs> it's Chet. And, and Brad. And Brad. And they, they tend to be like... Have you ever seen that episode of South Park? Aspen. Yes, yeah. This guy starts teasing Stan and, and calling him Stan Marsh, more like Stan Darsh. And he's never met him before. <laughs> and it's just the popular kid that they put in the teen movies that is kind of a dick. But Chan and Ronjon aren't actually being that dickish. Frankly, the guys we know are being the dicks in this one. Their happy ending at the very end of this <laughs> show is literally setting somebody's house on fire. It's like this weird, twisted, backward-ass version of an 80s teen movie. I love the rant Azula has as she kisses. Is it Chan? Uh, it's Chan, yeah. Together, 
you and I will be the strongest couple in the entire world. We will dominate the Earth! And then he does that little sort of face. And very occasionally, specifically in this uh, series, people take on like a face with like, it's like a wall face with two little black pin dot eyes. The, his bunny boiler alarm went off, I think. Yeah, yeah. May's character gets a bit more complex in this episode as well. Um, I never feel, although you get a bit of uh, Tylee's backstory uh, in this episode, I never feel that Tylee ever becomes a hugely complex character. Mm. But I do feel that May, in this book, gets fleshed out a lot more. And mm. in this episode, we're starting to see that. And the reason uh, they explain that the reason why she is the way she is is that she kind of got all the attention she could ever want. It's only recently that she's had uh, a baby brother, but until then she was an only child, but she was expected to be very proper, not to do anything outrageous, not to do anything too wild. So she doesn't get attached to anything uh, because she doesn't want to risk that being taken away from her. The only thing she's truly attached to is Zuko, and that's why when... uh, you know, not so much in this episode because Zuko's being a right dick. That's the only thing in her life that actually makes her feel happy. I'd say he's the only thing in her life that makes her feel anything. Yeah. I think it's difficult to see if, if May could achieve happiness, but she does smile and she does seem to enjoy. They have that kind of, like, they relax around each other. That's important for their relationship later on. Mm-hmm. After this, specifically. Because they kind of have to have it out about the the fact that Zuko's so angry clearly isn't you know doesn't make May particularly happy, and the fact that May is so indifferent to everything pisses Zuko off. Yeah, but this is what I was talking about when I said um, about how they they work well together because he is calmer around her, mm. um, possibly just because she exudes this glacial chilled outness almost um, mm. and she is more lively around him she actually smiles she makes jokes she you know even when they're um, at the palace and he's sort of you know trying to be the the um, demanding prince that people are expecting him to be she she sees some humor in ordering the servants around and mm. um, and that kind of thing yeah which, they're, they're both psychological extremes, but together they balance each other out. Mm. Yeah. The, uh, the bit where Ty Lee mentions that she's one of... Is it six or seven sisters? It's several, anyway. Yeah, it's, it's many, many sisters, and she, just, she had to join a circus to, to be someone who wasn't part of a giant group who will look like her. And at the very end, she ends up joining the Kiyoshi Warriors, a group of six or seven girls who all paint their faces and wear the same clothes and look exactly alike and train in perfect unison. And yet she's really, really happy with that. She kind of had to come full circle. I was going to say, I think a lot of that's to do with that she's, she's moved away from that of her own volition, gone mm. out into the world and found out who she is, mm. and now she's happy to come back to that. It's kind of interesting that, that I just realized that Time, Tylee, and May are basically polar opposites. One that's desperate for and craves attention, and another one that has grown up learnt trying to not draw attention to herself. Oh, speaking of the, the, the attention craving, um, was it Lyra, when we were in the back garden the other day, asked me to stand in the sun so that she could sit me in the shade? <laughs> <laughs> just, just imitating Tylee, and I was like, you monkey. 
Okay, I'll stand here. I was just wondering how long I would have to stand there. <laughs> and, oh, and at the um, very end of this episode, they would have been fully justified with breaking out in... the breakfast club when they're on the beach there's even that point when they're saying answer the question Zuko and if you kids have not seen the breakfast club it may feel very very 80s but go back and watch John Hughes the breakfast club it's fantastic quite an important part in this episode is actually Azula's admittance about her mother my own mother thought I was a monster she was right of course but it still hurt it's a big part of who she is really and because of that, she gravitated more towards her father. And you see this slight chink in the armour. I think the, the most significant part of that is not necessarily that she, she refers to the fact that she thinks her mother thought her, she was a monster, but that she is so dismissive of it. And, and that she says, it, you know, it, it still hurts, but, you know, it was, it was true. Um, but you find out at the end of this series how much of a knife in the heart that was. And to a certain extent, she she knows it's not true. Yeah, because obviously that's not really her mother who's saying that. It's, yeah. it's her. Um, this is the point where Zuko thinks back on the only good memories he has of spending time with his father, and it was right here on Ember Island. And he chooses to burn those memories. He sets yeah. the picture of his family on fire, which um, I, I think says a lot about what's going to happen later on. Yeah. yeah. So the next one is the Avatar and the Fire Lord, and we get to find out exactly why Zuko should uh, ally himself in the other way. Now, I mentioned last week, and was a little bit vague about it in case people hadn't seen uh, three, uh, the significance of the blue and the red dragons, the blue dragon being the one that represents Azula and Ozai, and that side of his family and that side of his soul that's you know trying to pull him towards his duty to his family and to his nation and to do what they're forcing him into. It's, it's only a duty forced upon him by them the rest of the Fire Nation would just be happy being presided over by a merciful Fire Lord. The Red Dragon belongs to Roku, but that just happens to be his, his great-grandfather. Yeah. Yes, yes, on his mother's side. So uh, th- this is a hugely significant episode. It's emblematic of the, the war that's going on within Zuko, and Zuko is symbolic of the entire Fire Nation. Absolutely. I truly like the fact that they go in between Roku talking to Aang and Zuko reading his great-grandfather's on his on the fire nation side's accountants of what he did. I just really like the way they establish how the war came about. Sozin's intentions don't seem as selfish or as self-involved as Fire Lord Ozai's is. It seems like his initial goal is literally just to spread the joy and happiness that he thinks uh, his nation is experiencing. Mm. I think as he gets older, possibly that vision gets twisted um, and it becomes more about ambition and leaving a legacy for his family. Um, And 
the friendship between Roku and Sozin, I think, was really well handled. Getting to see their entire life play out in a half-an-hour episode was really great. We didn't know much about Roku up to this point. Mm. We've known a, a lot about who he, like, who he is uh, from a personality point of view, but we didn't really get to see much of his history, so it's nice seeing how he became the way he is. Also, the fact that Roku's very much taken, very much like Cal Ang did, he's taken on the responsibility of this whole war because he took mercy on his oldest friend, and the fact that his friend used an opportunity to stab him in the back makes it all the worse for him. This episode also uh, shows us what the Avatar's training and journey should look like in an ideal situation, like the Avatar going and living amongst the vendors of each nation for a number of years and training and then finally coming home. Yeah. As opposed to like a, the quick rush job that Aang's having to do. It's interesting to me, and this is something that my wife pointed out, that so far each Avatar's biggest journey is having to deal with what unfinished business the previous one left. Yeah. Runaway is the next one, and this is probably the last major Toph episode, because she doesn't really get a big episode this series, and it's kind of to my chagrin, because everyone loves Toph. I think they, they kind of ran into a, a, a dead end with her as a character, because she's so at ease with who she is. She only has one blind spot, and that's her parents. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> It would have been nice for her to have her own Zuko adventure. Yeah, but that's the thing. They start to show her having a Zuko adventure, and she's pacing on the beach with him, lamenting about how her parents never listened to her. And actually, she's not dissimilar to May in that respect. Um, And he's like, yeah, you know what? Boo-hoo. My father facially burned me when I was 12 years old. So, mm, her, her weak spot is her parents, and... Both times that her parents have been mentioned are the possibility of meeting with them or uh, sending a message to them or something like that has happened. She's ended up in a cage because she lets her guard down at that stage. So it's kind of like this one had... Well, there had to be an episode where she actually did talk to her parents, confront them, and, and deal with this side of herself. But then once she's done that, she has no weaknesses, no flaws, no character quirks. She's just super tough... And the best fighter in the world. I do like the pairing off of characters that this episode gives us, though. I like like putting Katara and Toph together gives a lot of friction, but also a whole lot of uh, uh, catharsis when they come back together and are friendly. But also that just leaves us with Aang and Sokka together by themselves. <laughs> and they are hilarious but, when they are by themselves without Katara to keep them like intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> When um, Sokka sends the message to Katara, pretending it's from Toph, not realising, oh wait, Toph can't write, she's blind. It's just, it's, what were it's you guys thinking? It's the laziest sorry in the world. It's like, dear Katara, sorry for everything, love Toph. 
It's like, yeah, it's, that wouldn't even work with the character motivations of Toph. She wouldn't even apologize in that way. And then Aang follows it up. Well, I guess the only thing we can do is write an apology letter to Toph then. It's like, I think we're going to run into pretty much the same problem. <laughs> I already picked my toes. Twice. Twice? The first time's for cleaning, but the second time's just for the sweet picking sensation. I gotta say, Saka, I'm always impressed by your ideas. <laughs> Completely genuine, not sarcastic at all. Yeah. And this is the one where uh, Hawkey becomes sort of a, a tertiary character. This messenger hawk that Sokka is able to buy with his um, uh, his winnings from Toph's skullduggery. I don't absolutely think... no idea how to uh, get it to work. He's just like, I bought this messenger bird. <laughs> messenger bird. It can do all sorts of things for us. Okay, how does it work? Um didn't think about that. <laughs> there's, there's so many dun, dun. times, though, that they use this hawk and there's absolutely no reason that it, it should be able to... There's, I think there's one point where they say, take this to Grand Grand. How the hell does the hawk know who Grand Grand is? It's or very where? It's very much situation of, I bought this thing and I have no reason for it, so... Yes. He is a firm believer in the power of stuff, and the hawk comes under the, uh, the headline of stuff. Yeah. Now I never have to talk to people ever again. Nice. <laughs> it's it's uh, Avatar World text messaging. Yeah. And um, it, they also they, they sort of bring up the whole, uh, if you watch the pilot, there's a rivalry between the hawk and uh, Momo in that, and they sort of bring that back in this for just a brief moment. One scene I really like is when Sokka and Toph are sitting on that cliff and Katara is bathing in the pool underneath them and Sokka's uh, talking to Toph about the way he sees uh, Katara mm. and how he can't remember his mother anymore, can't remember her face. Yeah. And now when, she, when he thinks back about his mother, he sees Katara's face and how she's filled that role for him. And also Toph, uh, you know, opening up to Sokka about the way she feels about Katara's role in the group. She's never going to say any of this stuff to Katara uh, directly, but it was nice that she mm. admitted those feelings to somebody. And at the end, when she's locked in a wooden cage, uh, if this was a Toph episode, she would somehow find a way out on her own, but it becomes more of a Toph-Katara episode because Katara, using her sweat-bending abilities... Yeah, it's your first glimpses of Katara thinking outside the box of where to get water from. Yeah. It's a precursor to the next episode. Yeah, I was going to say, it really leads well uh, neatly onto the Puppet Master. Oh, and Combustion Man finally gets his name. Yeah, Combustion Man, of course. Cool seeing these um, kind of tangential bending disciplines coming out, like the metal bending that Toph discovers and hit Combustion Man's weird explosion-creating power, and mm. the next one we're just about to talk about. Okay, so the Puppet Master, this next one, really actually kind of creepy. Yeah. Genuinely so. Very. And, uh, partly due to the fact that the, the imagery of a sadistic, exceptionally powerful old witch is, is something primal in us to, to fear that. And um, is it Tress McNeil playing her? Sounds uh, like her. Let me yeah, it is. It is, yeah. She's played Mom in Futurama and, and uh, Mrs. Skinner in uh, The Simpsons, so you'd imagine that hearing her voice would uh, would somehow make that, oh, you know, perfectly fine and you wouldn't be scared of her, but for some reason she, she is able to really wrench a, a, an embittered, 
twisted, hate-filled performance out of this character, and at the same time, weave that into a believable, relatively genial mask of a character to begin with. One of the things that I find really, really intriguing about this story is that it it follows the tropes of a a classic um, sort of dark fairy tale. You have this, this... mad old woman who lives in the wood and people are disappearing and it's all connected with the full moon and it it's kind of it's almost wrong footing you because the, the setup in that in the way that I'm used to looking at fairy tales and, and myths is that the the mad old woman is actually the source of wisdom and she's you you're kind of you're supposed to be afraid of her at the beginning of the story, but then you learn that she has something very valuable to teach you. And Even Baba Yaga technically comes exactly, that and and she she is very Yaga like to the point where I was like, they need to check to see if her house is on chicken legs. Um, but then, as you get to know her more and you find out what's going on with her, yeah, you do need to be afraid of her. And yes, she has wisdom to teach you, but it's not really wisdom that you want to know. But she becomes more of a real person as well as you find out her motivation. Yes, and, and particularly seeing the flashback of her as a as a young woman as well, yeah. and, and understanding why. And I mean, I think don't they say she was one of the last waterbenders to be taken? Yeah. Um, which means that she was basically the last waterbender to be born into the tribe before Katara was born. And also that she put up the uh, Fire Nation ship uh, up into the ice, which was the one that they uh, went into in the first episode ever. Nice. I love the introduction of both positive and negative variations of the bending elements in this season in particular. Like, up until this point, water bending has been the pure and the clean and the healing one. And suddenly, we're, now we see water, what water bending can be at its worst. And a little bit later, we're going to get to see fire bending, which has been the destructive one all the way. Even, even among the good firebenders, like Zhang Zhang, he is the one who, reali- who recognizes how destructive fire bending is. We're later actually going to see fire bending as a positive force mm. and I would I'd really love to see the other two explored in that way later on yeah. well the the blood bending is almost literally the flip side of the healing abilities with water bending because uh, the the healing involves moving fluids through the body so that you can take um, I, I presume that they're taking antibodies to sources of, of infection or they're moving medicine through the body quicker than it would travel otherwise and with blood bending you're doing exactly that but you're inflicting your own will and using it for a very uh, controlling purpose uh, they will never ever do this in the show but we see that uh water can be drawn straight from flowers straight from trees like destroying mm-hmm. them instantly that could be done to a little sure, thing to a human it will never be done in this show guaranteed but that's terrifying yeah, well, that, I think there there is sort of a, a subtle implication of that because you you see the um, that what she does with the flowers and what she does with the trees. And I have to admit, when she picked up the rat, my first thought was that she was going to strip the fluid out of it. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, at this point, they could only do blood bending and a full moon. The way that they've animated people being blood bending, blood bit blood. Bended. Carry on. <laughs> Try it one more time. The way that they've animated people being blood-bended in this episode is truly haunting because it's the way their body just sort of twitches and you can sort of see their muscles yeah. being forced into these positions and it, must, it looks excruciatingly painful. 
Well, well, I imagine it's stopping uh, blood flow, uh, Mm. proper blood flow, um, because you're, uh, you know, pushing limbs in certain directions and and so forth and so on. You're not letting blood flow as it normally would. And I could imagine, like, you know when you, like, tie an elastic band around your finger and it gets, and it starts to kind of hurt and uh, you feel a lot of pressure in your finger and it starts to go purple. I imagine if you did that to somebody for an extended period of time, it would actually start to do a lot of permanent damage to them. And at the very least, it would be extremely uncomfortable. I think it it does tie in as well with the idea of, you look at the way that evil is portrayed in in this series, it's very subtle. There's lots of things brought in um, where they they seem to be trying to say there there is no real... um, outright 100% evil but but if there was going to be something which would be considered evil it's the imposition of your will mm. over someone else's um, and that's kind of the Fire Nation do that en masse and that's you know at the, the, under the, the behest of the Fire Lord and that's what makes them about as close to evil as, as you're really going to get but I think the Bloodbenders as well on an individual basis, imposing their will on somebody else comes very, very close to that definition. One of the watchwords throughout was that there would be no such thing as good and evil in this particular universe. They wouldn't even use those words. There was simply balance and imbalance. Yeah. Well, I suppose, yeah. The Fire Nation themselves are imbalanced. Yeah, if you're forcing your will onto somebody else, that's a lack of balance because you're taking away any self-balancing that that person's done. The thing that I love about this, their whole philosophy is the fact that the people who are considered bad are very broken people. Something in their life has made them see the world in this way. Yeah. Next one is Nightmares and Daydreams, which doesn't sound like it could be the funniest of uh, all the episodes, but it might just be the most uh, surreal, bizarre episode just fraught with with fever dreams taking place in real life. It's great because they can also start making more obvious references References, to some material they're drawing from Mm. uh, through Aang's dreams. I mean, the first dream, he clearly looks like Goku from Dragon Ball Z. Yep. (laughs) And the second one, Master Stampede from Trigun. An excellent show, I might add. This and the last to animate. The, the part where Momo becomes a, a samurai <laughs> rabbit uh, is Usagi Yojimbo. That which is, is amazing. Yeah. I love that. A brilliant yeah. bit of reference to an underground comic book. Aang's uh, breakdown is also really entertaining to watch. Mm. Um, not just him going crazy, but everyone else's reaction to it. Um, there's a great moment where um, Aang goes off on his little uh, air scooter and mm. uh, so- uh, Sokka's staring over the book he's reading he just slowly lifts the book up just like okay he's lost it um, <laughs> and Katara's des- desperately trying to be patient with him it's like okay I really need you to chill out now Ang. You're, you're starting to freak everyone else in the group out you've got to chill out and Mr. Fire comes back. Yep, Wang Fire. Wang Fire. He appears to acquired a psychology degree in the end. Yeah. He actually starts looking like Sigmund Freud, especially when he's like, hmm, 
and is stroking his beard while Aang lies on a couch made of sheep. And this is a great episode to teach young kids the importance of sleep and rest. <laughs> the idea that, that staying up all the time will make you crazy. Which, believe it or not, folks, is quite difficult to instill in them. Aang's last dream, because most of his other dreams, uh, not his last last dream, but the dream just before he has the happy resolution and is able to go to sleep, is actually quite scary. Um, watching this, um, what I assume is Sozan's comet, hit the Earth and then the entire planet is just ash and molten rock. It's a really terrifying vision and it reminded me a lot of the scene in... The Terminator 2? Oh, I was going to say Fellowship of the Ring where Odo looks into the uh, water, um, into Galadriel's mirror oh, yeah, and yeah. sees oh, the, the scouring the of the scouring Shire. Of the Shire. Yeah. Yeah. Eowyn also has a similar dream specifically it, I think they detail it more in the book where she dreams that a, a giant wave uh, covers the entire land in much the same way and as I just mentioned Terminator 2 Sarah Connor's dream of uh, Judgment Day very similar this apocalyptic vision haunting one person and yeah, that's the one where uh, Toph disappears into the earth and, and could, yeah, all of his friends are dying it's horrible it's weird that you get the, the most horrific imagery in this, the, the same time as the most hilarious. Six I think they probably planned it that way. Yeah. Otherwise it would be very, very hard to bear. If it weren't a heavy episode, it would have been especially troubling. But because it's in the funny episode, it kind of balances out a little bit. But it's an important one, just to, to take a break and, and say, look, this is what's weighing on Aang's mind at this point. I do love the, um, the little uh, classic dream psychology tropes in this not wearing pants the, the showing up somewhere without your pants the maths test that you forgot about the waking mm. up and realising that you're late and you've missed what you were supposed to be there for um, and then to realise that you're actually still asleep and just dreaming that you're late um, even in the, the first one the, the all the eyes that open up in the cave mm. that's quite a classic one as well having the eye, the eye thing uh, Ag's daydreaming his confession to Katara. What are we doing? What our hearts have been telling us to do for a long, long time. Baby, you're my forever girl. Ang? Huh? I was just saying you should take a nap. You're my forever girl. <laughs> <laughs> Pants are an illusion. Yes. <laughs> That it's interesting. There's a tightrope for them to walk to actually bring in Mark Hamill and uh, have him be the Fire Lord, be uh, you know ridiculously over the top, and then be you know shown without pants and ridiculously embarrassed. And yet, then you know the next episode he becomes terrifying again. Uh, next episode, but one he doesn't actually feature in literally the next episode. So the next one is the Day of Black Sun. We may as well just do this as, as a one. I'm impressed that even in a show that is completely bloodless, where no one is ever shown dying, they still manage to build up a lot of tension over this invasion. Like, mm. there's a lot of anxiety for people's safety. That's pretty impressive. I was convinced that their father was going to die at this point. I mean, it doesn't help that we're only halfway through the season, so you can sort of tell this isn't going to go according to plan, is it? I love the build-up of emotion uh, towards the beginning of the first part, um, with, especially with uh, Katara and Aang, and Aang finally kisses Katara. Um, he immediately flies off at that point, which I think was a wise decision. Just, you know, kiss her and leave. That's great. Let her think about it. 
Um, but <laughs> it's just, it was a nice, smooth. That it was the right moment to do it also because this is the the event that they've all been building up to. As far as they're concerned, this is the final battle, um, and Ang is genuinely terrified that this is it. I may die. I might as well let Katara know exactly how I feel. She may not feel the same way, but hell, I might die, so who cares? It's also a wonderful sort of uh, series of callbacks where everyone turns up and it's like, hey, it's Pipsqueak and the Duke, and it? The boulder! (laughs) Thank God they brought back the boulder, because if they didn't, you'd miss him. It, and, it, retro- uh, it retroactively ties everything in season one back together into the story as a whole. Yeah. It, it makes them not one-offs anymore, which is great. Even Haru's little mustache, which gets yeah. a mention <laughs> in, uh, in Sokka's extended speech. It also is a, it's quite a neat way of um, giving you more investment into the, the outcome of the invasion. Because you're if, if it was just a... Not a faceless exactly, but if it was just a group of water tribe people and a load of earth people that you'd never met before, you'd you'd have the feeling of yes, these are people and they're important, but they wouldn't necessarily have that same importance to you. But because you know them, you know the faces, you know the backstories. Every single one of those soldiers is somebody that you will miss if they get hurt. It's true. This is the one where uh, Iro finally speaks a bit more again. He's uh, talking to Ming. Mm. in the prison and gets her to leave because he knows what's about to happen and uh, Ming was voiced by Serena Williams Serena Williams the tennis player oh wow brilliant she She looks a bit like her as well she met them when uh, Brian and uh, Michael were doing sort of uh, they were at the gym and they were uh, flinging their arms about and sort of practicing for various shots and uh, she sort of dryly commented that they get a good workout and they became very self-conscious but then they gave her a spot on the show, which apparently she was a major fan. I have to say that the uh, action sequences that occur in this episode are up there with my favourite in uh, favourites in the entire series. Um, nothing can top the finale, but this is really close. Um, especially, I really, really like that they bring back the Dai Li in this episode mm. uh, with Azula. Uh, as we all know, the Fire Nation are extremely weakened at this point. Uh, they can't use their firebending whatsoever. So it was really nice that uh, even though Azula couldn't firebend, she still had a few tricks up her, her sleeve ready to defend her. Mm. Um, and I really like um, the conflict with Toph and the other uh, Earthbenders, because it showed the advantage that her metal bending gave her when that mm. guy was backed up on that pillar, and he, she just it smacked the uh, rock fist out of the way and then bent the pillar around him, and he was trapped and he was done. It's just this amazing ability that no one else has, and Toph has. She just she can beat every Earthbender she encounters because of it. Yeah, as long as there's enough metal around. You've sort of forgotten that Azula's known this whole time that they've been planning to invade, so she's completely prepared for them actually coming and the fact that Aang gets the palace and absolutely nobody's even in within their surrounding city is truly haunting for him. But they were always going to lose because of that information. And it's, it's kind of a uh, Return of the Jedi moment. Of- Admiral, we have any ships It's a trap! We finally get um, Zuko's official... 
yeah, as yeah, well, as well. Major. Oh, there were apparently a lot of people very upset by the end of season two, and justifiably so, I believe, because yeah. we've been led to believe that Zuko was on the path, and then his behaviour at the end of that season would suggest that we were fools to believe that, and that we trusted him, which is why that's so good, yeah. because we feel what Katara oh, right. feels. Yep. This this sense that what what we just invested all of this faith in you. What what are you doing? And people were apparently, you know, from the very beginning in the uh, the earlier series, thinks saying, "Ah, oh, Zuko's he's not that bad. He's going to to help out Team Avatar in the end." You know, Mike and uh, Brian got word of that, and we're like, "Well, well done for guessing that." It's not supposed to be a huge reveal. It's kind of kind of obvious once you work out that Zuko's not a bad sort. So ending that season two in that way, it's just it's a great way of yanking the rug out from under everyone and going, "No, maybe that won't happen." Or maybe you're going to have to work all the harder for it now. The conversation Zuko has with his father is absolutely fantastic because yeah. it's just him, stream of consciousness, telling his father exactly how he feels about the situation and his upbringing. Um, and the way that his father is just so dismissive of everything he's saying, he's barely taking it in. His son is trying to get across all these important um, ideals to his father, and it's just, you know, bouncing off of him. He still doesn't care. And the cruel way that he um, torts him with the, with his, the story of what happened to his mother is quite is exceedingly cruel, to be honest. And the fact that, essentially, to save her son... She became an outcast herself. I, it's a wonderful speech from Zuko, and the fact that um, the Fire Lord comes off as not really comprehending what's going on and the the gravity of the situation, he just treats it as like this is treason. Blah, I've been expecting this. Um, he comes off as actually extremely weak. Yeah, as as though he has no real presence there. All he can do is instill fear. But since Zuko doesn't fear him anymore. It's null and void. It's just such a great payoff to such a long, long journey for Zuko, and as well as for the the lightning trick he learned. Like, basically the big payoff to everything that's been building over two and a half seasons, finally. And because they didn't do it so neatly and cleanly in season two, we can still have some really good butting of heads between he and Katara later. Such a great choice to not have that turn happen at the end of season two. Oh, uh, just because we haven't really talked about it, the Uncle Iroh transformation moment. Uh, you, you start off and, and Iroh is is just in his cell, pathetic, and, and that guy's taunting him. But when you get that little look pass across Iroh's eyes and he's left alone and he starts working out, you're like, yes, the man with the plan. And again, there's quite a lot of Terminator 2 things going on in, in, in this series specifically. But when he starts doing chin-ups and he's just like Sarah Connor, he's got a plan, he's going to get out of there. And it would appear that he is just as fantastic a, uh, a firebender as Toph is an earthbender because once again the, the steel doesn't mean anything to him in the end he gets out for it nonetheless one of the things that we've sort of skipped over is um, Sokka's big um, doubts during the invasion the fact yeah. that when it comes to make the big speech he trips and sort of fumbles around and he feels that he's sort of lost this shining moment when his moment actually comes when during the invasion when he takes yeah. over for his father. 
ultimately he wants to be um, well he, he wants to be as great a warrior as his father and inspiring troops uh, with fantastic speeches is not at least at this stage in his life going to be his thing right I'm guessing here you guys are probably much more informed on this than I am but adolescent boys seem to me to go through a phase where they are quite I don't know if clumsy is quite the word when it applies to what you're saying, but where everything that comes out of their mouth is wrong and the timing is wrong and it's, it just it doesn't fit and it, what you say at the beginning doesn't make any sense at the end. And there's a lot of possibly slightly Hollywoodized portrayals of what a hero is supposed to be. Mm. That, that kind of rousing speech just comes naturally and if you're heroic then it's it's just how you are and it's not it's a skill that you learn and Ang quite neatly points that out to him it's just public speaking nobody really likes it nobody is really good at it I'm I'm gonna go with that yeah yeah Um, I was an exceptionally awkward teenager yeah difficulties with articulating yourself no but I'd had podcasting back then (laughs) (laughs) And also, Azula's time-wasting manoeuvres, when she's got um, no firebending abilities, all of her evasion is very similar to Aang's, but it's also based on the movements from parkour. Well, even when she gets caught, she still manages it with uh, Winded Up Soccer, my favourite yeah. prisoner, used to mention you all the time. I'm glad that they decided that this episode was going to be another failure for Team Avatar. Yeah. Because yeah. they built this up to be, okay, this is going to be the, our chance to win this this war but they lose and that's great because it makes the fire nation even more threatening yeah and azula even more threatening because she planned around this um plan that they had all this time and she worked out everything and she you know she beat them uh, yet again like she did last season and that that raises the stakes so much more because now what other chance do they have that was their ultimate shot the yeah. firebenders were utterly powerless and they blew it and so what next you know Sozin's comet is next and that that's when the firebenders become the most powerful benders on the planet one thing i find really interesting about the the end of this episode when the uh, the adults are going to hand themselves in mm. um it speaks quite specifically of what they still perceive as the honour of the Fire Nation. There's never any question that if they hand themselves in they'll be taken, you know, if they, if they surrender they'll be taken prisoner and they'll survive. The next one's the Western Air Temple, or how Zuko got his cool back, <laughs> or Zuko joins Team Avatar. But having it upside down was a stroke of genius. Yeah, that was cool. Boomy levels of genius. Hey, Zuko okay, so here. The Badger Frogger. This is the bit with, uh, I'm no good at impersonations, but Zuko's <laughs> had me in hysterics. 
Zuko, you have to look within yourself <laughs> to save yourself <laughs> from your other <laughs> self. <laughs> Only then <laughs> will your true <laughs> self reveal itself. <laughs> Even when I pretend to be him, I don't know what he means. <laughs> I can't do the one. Listen, Avatar. I can join your group, or I can do something unspeakably horrible to you and your friends. Your choice. Yeah, as uh, Dante Bosco very rarely gets to be funny in the show, so when he gets to be funny here and is actually kind of rubbish at being funny, it's all the funnier. It's wonderful. I kind of wish we got more. I, you know, I, 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 awkward Zuko by Yeah, I mean, awkward. Frankly, Zuko could have joined them from, like, I don't know, the end of season two. And, like, this could have been the whole way through uh, the, the, the season. It, it was golden. It's just We don't seem to get enough time of Zuko on the side of the righteous. But, again, with Korra, they may be able to do some flashback episodes. The scene where he confronts Team Avatar mm. first time... <laughs> yeah. It, well, I, I don't find it funny. I actually kind of find it really sad, because yeah. he is there with honest intentions. Like, yeah. we as an audience know that he has changed, and he's not going to drift back to his old ways. But the other team, and rightly so, to be fair... Yeah. will not trust him and they're saying you know leave now we will never let you join our group go and especially Katara has more than enough reasons to doubt um, uh, Zuko's intentions because she fell for it before and uh, you know Zuko betrayed her he starts off quite well with Appa backing him up then they finally find out that he was the one who saved Appa embossing say but then he just completely ruins it by telling him he sent the assassin after them yeah probably shouldn't have mentioned combustion man <laughs> no but then that would have been another lie so at least he gets it out you know early up front yeah. early i mean i i found the scene where um where toff goes to talk to him and he accidentally burns her yeah that was that was heartbreaking because that was like oh no that's another chance and it's gone uh, he should have been I, sat there in the lotus position waiting for someone to come see him because surely he should know that he's at least piqued their curiosity at this point. Someone's going to come find him. Just do, Iroh would have done that. He'd have made himself some tea, sat down and waited. But he's and not Iroh yet. That's, the, I think that's kind oh. of the point that's being made. It underlines how blundering he is. Mm. I like he's, the, never um, known that, he's never known that group to look for him. Mm. <laughs> like, like He's always the one having to chase. I like the argument that Toph gives before she goes with it, because you've got to remember, when she came into the group, Azula was the only one hunting them. She only knew about Zuko from them recounting their whole thing, so she's the one willing to give him a chance, and it's heartbreaking, the fact that he messes that up. Yeah. But and she, also, burning her feet is the equivalent of scalding her retinas. Yeah. That's, that's a wound she won't uh, forgive easily. I mean, but she sort of understands, because she knows she did surprising but mm. she's just as unsure as everybody else to that sort of, that extent well, she, for, for a very practical uh, reason as well once she's had her feet burned she can't yeah. tell whether he's lying or not yeah also Toph's the one with the least emotional baggage of all of them and um, originally when they wrote it it was going to be Sokka who was the most reticent to letting Zuko in the group but when it came down to it Sokka is actually eminently practical as a person and so he was like look we need a firebender he seems to be on the level. And Katara, who was the most emotional and the most most likely to trust him before he betrayed her, is the person least likely to trust him now. 
he had to really earn it. He had to really push through. And, and, and uh, there's the thing about you actually learn more from your mistakes than you do with your successes. Yeah. The fact that um, he tries to stop the assassin, and by this point, the assassin is so set on killing them that he doesn't care anymore. Yeah. It's almost like the assassin's thinking if I can say I'm the guy who killed the avatar. It's going to do a, you know a lot for me later down the line as an assassin. Yeah, and I mean he's if, a smart enough guy. He knows yeah. that the Fire Lord wants him wants the Avatar dead. It's, it's common knowledge in the Fire Nation. Yeah. Plus, you don't learn to cause explosions and not be smart. Yeah. Although it would appear he caused one too many explosions for his arm yeah. and his leg. And oh, it's great that Sokka gets to actually use his boomerang in the way that all of these <laughs> vendors with their incredible powers, all four elements, and none of them can touch this guy. And the boomerang does it. Yes. Awesome. At the end of the episode, when you have Katara coming in and basically laying it down that as soon as you step out of line, I'm taking you out. Yeah. Well, she, she says in, in no uncertain terms, they're very coy about the term, I will kill you, but it's pretty clear that's what she means. I will end your destiny. Point. Yeah. I will end your destiny. Make of that what you will, prince. I felt so sad for Zuko in that yeah. scene. You can't help but feel sad for him because, as I said before, you know he's honest. But, but Katara, and, you know, she's justified in it, can't see that. Yeah. And she's so angry at him in that scene. That seems really tense because not only is um, Mae Whitman's performance really like intense and powerful, the animation in that scene felt really. It felt a bit more subtle than usual. It wasn't yeah. over exaggerated. It was just slight uh, facial expressions on Katara's face that felt, you know, really awful. That. That is something they've definitely amped up in this season. The facial expressions have really been given weight by the way they focus on the faces more whenever they're contorting in anger or sadness or just making a funny face. Really. It would appear that the Duke and... Is it Hiru? And Tao, the, uh, the disabled kid, uh, are sort of hanging around as well, but they didn't quite know what to do with them. And there was this whole you know, side plot they were planning where they were going to be doing... Street luge, but <laughs> uh, all possibly finding a, a nest of momos. They actually wanted the species of uh, lemur monkeys and uh, flying bison to be able to come back by the end of this series. And um, one of the twists was going to be that Apple would turn out to be female and would give birth to a litter of flying bison, which would have been awesome, actually. But um, we'll find out in Corin. It's not out of the question that that could still actually have happened. Um, because there's at least one flying bison in Korra. This episode has the flashbacks for Zuko, who's already been to the Western Air Temple. Yeah. Iroh gives him the, uh, you never know how things are going to work out, but if you keep an open mind and an open heart, I promise you'll find your own destiny someday. Yeah. yeah. Really destiny-driven episode. Brian and Michael mentioned that, that was being like being given fantastic advice that you only realise was incredibly important to you years later, usually when it's too late to thank the person who gave it to you. Sometimes it's like once-in-a-lifetime insight from someone who, uh, you know, is a mentor. Next one, the Firebending Masters. This is the first of the Zuko road trips. <laughs> Zuko will fix your problems. Yeah. Um, it's... 
I mean, a lot of this one's actually um, Zuko fixing his own problems regarding finding the uh, a new source for his firebending other than rage. And giving Aang a different outlook on fire. Better yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a wonderful way of showing him as being both a teacher and a pupil. I mean, they're effectively learning firebending from scratch together. I thought that these episodes, uh, the Zuko road trip episodes, for lack of a better term, mm. uh, were a really clever idea because we don't really have time to build a solid relationship between Zuko and each of these characters properly the same way that Katara has a relationship with Aang and Sokka has a relationship with Katara, etc., etc., because we have such a limited time to establish that kind of uh, stuff. So dedicating episodes where, where they pair off Zuko with somebody else and then get them to interact with each other was a quick way of getting that done in half an hour so that we could get on with the major story and the major events. And I feel like some of the interactions between Zuko and Aang were really great, uh, especially yeah. when they're trapped together um, <laughs> by the glue. And they're just Had to pick uh, up the glowing gem, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> the part with the, um, the Sun Warriors was really fascinating because it gave a, a sense of deeper history, ancient history to the Four Nations, the idea that these cultures have, have sprung up around the different uh, styles of bending and how they've now been forgotten by the existing ones that have just sort of laid themselves on top. This episode, more than any of the others, reminded me of the mysterious cities of gold. Sun Warriors definitely have a sort of correlation with Aztecs. Yeah. Oh, and I love that bit at the end where he's like... <laughs> Now you may never again leave this city. city. Just kidding. Just kidding. Seriously, don't, don't, don't tell me. anyone. But seriously. Right. <laughs> it's rare that Aztecs have that kind of sense of humour, but this guy managed it. You get some insight into Iroh's history here as well. Yeah. At first, you're told that he killed the last dragon, and Aang's a bit confused by that because he thought, thinks, well, isn't your uncle the, one of the good guys? And Zuko says... Well, he had a complicated past, family tradition, I guess, and I really like that moment. Zuko finding uh, something to relate to with his uh, with his uncle, yeah. um, but I also like they reveal at the end that actually Iroh met these dragons and learnt the uh, the way of of using fire that the Sun Warriors have learnt, and how not to draw it from anger and not to draw it from rage, for it to be fueled by this inner flame that isn't you know, a negative emotion, but this driving force within you. Earthbenders learned their abilities from the badger moles, airbenders from the flying bison. The fact that the Fire Nation, pasted over the ruins of the Sun Warriors' culture, deliberately sought out and slaughtered the very dragons who taught them how to first bend fire, is symbolic of the aggressive and ultimately self-destructive nature Sozin instilled in his people. It's very possible he asked the remaining dragons to help him conquer the other nations in the manner of the Targaryen family from Game of Thrones. It would appear that the dragons said no.
right, so the next one is the Boiling Rock Parts 1 and 2. My theory is that they could have made the Boiling Rock Parts 1 and 2 simply the Boiling Rock and had Zuko go on a uh, field trip with Toph for the other episode. Because I think the Boiling Rock goes on a little bit too long for me. If there's any weak point in the series, it's this. I think I agree. Yeah. It's still great, but um, they just spend a bit too long in Alcatraz. Um, talk about why it's good, Kai. I'm not saying it's not good. It's really it's, it's great. Just um, goes on a bit. I just like a lot of it. We get Suki back, obviously. Yes. Um, I suppose more part two was more important, and I see what you're saying. They weren't really needed for the other prisoner and getting the boat out and things like that, using the caller to do it. Did you hear that? Jesus, what was that? That was my phone. <laughs> it sounded like a demon coming out of you. Bane <laughs> saying the fire rises. Anyway. May and Ty Lee break away from Azula Hero a bit. Basically, May loves Zuko more than she fears Azula. Yeah. So she just tries to save them. And then, as Azula's going to attack May, Ty Lee comes in and she blocks her. Yeah. And they both get thrown in the slammer for it. <laughs> and that's a huge part of Azula's unravelling. Yeah, it's one of the moments where you see her lose it a bit. No, you're wrong. You should have feared me a lot more. Mm. Yeah. It's really Azula's doing anyway. She just finally pushes them too far, asks, demands too much of them. And That's it, yeah. Yeah. It's, it was the only time I've ever really kind of cheered Ty Lee because she's just been so annoying for the, every other episode she's been in. I'm like, yes, finally. Because, uh, as I said before, she's scary insofar as how smiley she is at doing these terrible things. And you're like, do you not get uh, any on any level the hurt that you're causing here, Tylee. And clearly she actually did. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've always kind of liked Tylee a bit more, but, but yeah, yeah, this was definitely like there's her a, best moment. Hmm. There's a different the way, yeah, there's a way of thinking about it where she's not actually as violent as anyone. She disables people. She never yeah. actually physically hurts anyone. It's quite a passive yeah. way of fighting. Terrifying. But passive. Yeah. But it's like passive aggressive because what she's doing, she's still accomplishing their being taken down for Azula. It's just in a relatively harmless way. Well, if you think about it, it's better her she takes them down than Azula gets them. Mm. Yeah. That's also May's a bit knife happy, so she it's lucky she's so skillful. <laughs> Someone's gonna get shivved. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about a girl who was spending her days in a peaceful city mm. and had random blades on her anyway before yeah. Azula came to see her. You actually get to see quite a bit of uh, May and Ty Lee's acrobatics and even a bit of knife action uh, in Azula a couple of episodes ago in Dare Black Sun Part 2. Yeah. All of that leaping around and evasions and stuff. It seems like Azula's been studying her friends for most of, well, most of their younger life. And has you know that's what she's been getting out of them. She's effectively been leeching their abilities and powers off them. And then she gets knife happy with uh, the Avatar at the end, only stopped by um, Toph, isn't it? Uh, the first one is a prison break episode, really. I do agree with Alex though that this is yeah. It, it felt like there was a lot of chaff in these two episodes. Like I could have done with a little less, you know, antics in the prison and just get on with the meat of what was going on. Yeah. More of Sokka's father, more of Suki, yeah. um, more of May. Um, and I, I don't really care about that prisoner who gets interrogated. I, I, they kind and of his try, girlfriend. Yeah, they kind of try and yeah. make you get evo uh, emotionally invested in him. 
but I still didn't care. And they don't even focus on him after they leave the prison. You could edit these two episodes down into one killer episode. Yeah. 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 But that would leave one extra episode for Toph Bay Fong. I will say there's one line in this that it's sad, yet funny. Mm -hmm. My first girlfriend turned into the moon. That's rough, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. I do love those two little awkward conversations. Actually, we met a long time ago. We did? Yeah. You kind of burned down my village. Oh, sorry about that. Nice to see you again. It's kind of ironic that they get into this situation and have very little to say to each other because these two should have the most in common Mm. out of any of the, the Avatar gang. They're similar in age, um, you know, they're both teenage boys, they've both got father issues, issues. they've both got sister issues. Yeah, they've both got girlfriend issues. Yeah. They both have problems finding a place in the world. They're both frustrated a lot of the time. Often because their perspective on things isn't taken seriously by the people around them. Often self-inflicted. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so yeah, I, I still think uh, a Toph episode would have been I, even if they knocked it up to 22 episodes in this series I don't think anyone would have complained The staff, I'm sure but <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of the fans would have complained I think the, the essence of the artificial extension of this episode is basically that they make you watch the planning and execution of an escape twice Yeah Yeah Next episode is the Southern Raiders, and as I said, this is the heaviest episode, maybe at all, in Avatar. It's it's got some genuinely unsettling moments. It's up there, I suppose, with the uh, the Puppet Master. Yeah. In terms of unsettling, again, both of them concern Katara because she's say. not funny and she's very emotional. She is a goldmine of of drama in in these shows. This is my second favorite episode of the entire series, um, mainly because I've I've loved Katara all the way through. She's not one of my favorite characters, but I think she's definitely one of the most complex characters on the show. Yeah, and seeing her go face to face with one of the biggest issues that she's had to deal with in her life, and it be Zuko. Uh, be the person that actually helps her resolve this issue in her life was really great because it not only allows her to come to terms with her past but it also allows her to finally forgive Zuko for what he did to her back in the uh, back in Barsing Say. It's very much a case of Zuko exi- feel understands exactly how she feels, knowing that. There's this hate inside of you that you just don't know what to do with and you need to point it at something. Mm. What makes this episode extra scary is that it's kind of like Katara's going down the wrong path. You'd want her to go down this path here. In the Puppet Master, we saw the witch who devoted a life to revenge. What is she going to turn out like that? Don't do this. Mm. But obviously, it all works out. But there's the hangover from that Hama, the the witch, the the bloodbending which she uses on that um, raider. Once she's taken the life of this man, will that be enough for her? If she's killed him, could it be a, a simple case of right? That was all I needed to do. Now I'm at peace. Or would it be a, a sense of 
that wonderful phrase out of uh, Kung Fu Panda 2, the cup which you're trying to fill has no bottom. Yeah. yeah. I think having murdered someone would definitely cause a lot more breakage and problems within her than, uh, yeah. than it would solve. I think the, the issue there would be if she killed him, if the way she feels is still not resolved, what does she do then? If he's still alive, she can keep coming back to it over and over again until it's properly been soothed away. Right. Once he's dead, that's it. That's, that's her, her path of, of redemption, if you like, is closed. This is another one of those uh, episodes where Aang it goes from being uh, pupil to teacher, where he's uh, telling her about the uh, two-headed viper monkey or something like that. Rat viper. When you're killing one head and watching it die, it's poisoning you with the other. I do wonder if um, the attitude towards Katara's need for revenge, or, or her believing that she has a need for revenge at this point, mm. is coloured by who we've come to see her as. Because we've her, her um, persona has been developed as this sort of very kind understanding, caring maternal person is it that much more horrifying to the to the audience that she does have this streak of, of incredible anger within her that needs to be dealt with whereas it's, it's, it's anger in Zuko, we expect anger in Aang, he doesn't show it so much but you can still understand it but in Katara it's almost like it's so contradictory to how we've had her how we've believed her to be but mm. it's, it's very jarring and very shocking to see her express that if you watch her fighting style she's extremely aggressive for a waterbender there's a lot of anger in there and, and just watching her fight it's it's apparent she wears it on her sleeve that she's got this boiling up inside her it's when when jet surprises her in basing say she says a lot of uh, things in this uh, episode that are really cutting and really harsh um for example uh Sokka brings up the fact that you know maybe ang's right maybe we should just yeah. forgive this guy and then katara says well you didn't love our mother as much as i did then mm. and that was the first moment where i thought katara that is really uncalled for you know your brother loves uh, your mother just as much as you do this entire episode is really her unleashing all this and getting rid of all the negativity inside of her. And that as a statement could have been brought about by the um, the revelation he put about in The Runaway that he can't remember his mother so much. So maybe while she was thinking that's really, really sweet, she's also thinking, but I have a far deeper connection with our mother than he does. Still, you know, that what she said is it's totally really uncalled for. I agree, completely. There's a quote I'm trying to look for. She says it at the end, and I can't think what it is. Something about, was it her being strong enough not to kill him, or her being too weak to kill him? And she wasn't sure which it was. Yeah, that was that didn't sit well with me. But then she turns and says, I'm ready to forgive Zuko, which was nice. I think it was about her understanding where that anger and where that pain is coming from. Instead of directing it at everyone in the Fire Nation, she had somebody to focus it on, somebody to blame it on, and now could, you know, not generalise everyone in that group of people the same way uh, she treated that one person. Well, part of the healing is seeing what a pathetic individual this, this figurehead for her hate has become and clearly always was. He's basically Seymour Skinner now. Yeah. Mm. Living with his horrible mother. Indeed. But th I think the shift in power is quite important because if, if you look at sort of 
the, the psychological aspects of forgiveness, it could be argued that the first step of forgiveness is actually to be in a position where you can crush the person who's wronged you or at least, you know, hurt them in some way and you choose not to. Now, you can only do that if you have that position of power. And up until that point, she's never had that. Zuko gave that to her. That's got to be incredibly valuable for her and probably goes a long way towards her reconciling with him. However, to mitigate these exceptionally dark, exceptionally weighty themes, there is the funniest single short moment in Avatar, for me, in any of the episodes, which is when Zuko sneaks into... <laughs> so oh, he, was he just walked in there. He just walks in there expecting to, Sokka to just be, just be hanging around. And Sokka is... <laughs> Everyone would have seen this already, but it's just sort of uh, regaling himself as a Lothario. Um, He's basically lying there in his underwear. Yeah. Well, hello. Uh, Zuko, yes, why would I be expecting anyone different? And it's the double whammy of Zuko's wall face (laughs) and Sokka biting in half and consuming some of the rose he had clutched in his mouth. (laughs) The fact that Zuko just doesn't understand what's going on. He runs into Suki outside, doesn't understand why she's going there. Goes in, sees Sokka there. I still don't understand... Was I interrupting something? Oh, I think he understands. <laughs> he just he never wanted to see that. It's, it's yeah. one of those things where you go, wash your eyes. Yeah. Okay, and speaking of wonderful comedy moments, the um, oh, Calm oh. Before the Storm, the Ember Island Players, maybe my daughter's favourite episode of all of them. I don't get how a three-year-old can completely take on board exactly how silly and stupid this play is and how embarrassing it is to the actual lead characters, but she loves this episode. This is a girl who does refer to several Batman films as the silly Batmans, don't forget. Yeah. Right. This was, I think, what they were preparing for um, should the Shyamalan film turn out to be like Batman and Robin. As in utterly ridiculous, silly, never taking the source material seriously, or even researching the source material. As it turned out, it didn't research the source material, and it took everything far too seriously. Oh, we could easily quote this episode all day. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's, it's, it's a clip show, effectively. It's, it's them going back and doing that sort of, the, you know, remember when this happened? Remember when this happened? Just reminding you of all the stuff that's happened on the road to this point. This last thoughtful point before the plunge. But it's hilarious. At the same time, it gets to them. So sad for Aang when they, uh, the Zuko guitar of it, and uh, oh no, Aang's just like a brother to me. Yeah. I like that they insert some production jokes in there as well. For yeah. example, that Toph in the play is played by a male <laughs> character. And anyone who's done their behind-the-scenes uh, behind research knows that Toph was originally going to be a blind male character, not a girl at all. Yeah, I love that bit. My name's Toph, because it sounds like tough, and that's just what I am. <laughs> and I love that Toph loves that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You get the pan across all their faces, and they're all horrified, and uh, and she's just got the biggest smile right. ever. Yeah. Do you want know the way she the way she sees in the play? Just, just <laughs> shout. 
I can kind of make out your face now. That's also kind of it's this is, by their own confession. This is them making fun of themselves before yeah. anyone else could. And the fact that Toph is totally at ease with her character is emblematic of the fact that Toph is totally at ease with her own character. There are almost no hang-ups there, and so it, it, it's perfect that there should be nothing that is reflected in the Ember Island players that Toph is unhappy with. Sokka's just obsessed with the person being me has to be funny. He's not being funny. Yeah, and when he uh, finally gets the person to tell a joke, he <laughs> reacts extremely. And it's, it's, they're awful jokes. They're yeah. really, uh, really bad, and they're delivered in the worst possible way as well. But for some food. reason, it tickles soccer pink. And um, oh, the fact that Ang is a woman is because they actually had to fight a battle when they started with the casting because the tradition is to make a thirty-something woman play the young lad yeah. because of production schedules, trying to get a small child who's also at school to voice uh, you know, a character in a, a major show which could go on for dozens of episodes. And, and voice, so his voice breaking. Precisely, their voice well. breaking. But they had to go, no, you know what? It's okay if these guys age a bit. And uh, so they, they got their way with that. But that... It, also, it's the fact that Peter Pan, whenever he's played in the in theatre, is always mm. a woman. And it's... Uh, to me, I was a kid. I was like, really frustrated with that. I was like, seriously, Peter Pan's like a really good role. There's not one boy who could do that. Apparently not. The boy who could never grow up is an overambitious 26-year-old woman. I like that uh, Toph and uh, Zuko get a little short moment as well because obviously everyone except Toph is pretty embarrassed by their characters' portrayals. But for Zuko, this is actually a lot harder because all of the their history up until this point has been entirely mistake after mistake after mistake and hurting people. Yeah. And he's kind of having to relive that a little bit. So I, I really like that they have a nice little moment and even Zuko gets to have a little tough affection punch before the show's over. Great Delisle plays the fake Katara in the Ember Island Players. She also played Katara's mother in the previous episode. Which is... And it's so soft and subtle the way she plays her that you wouldn't know it's Grey Delisle who usually tends to play slightly more brassy characters my heart is so full of hope it's making me tear man <laughs> <laughs> yeah <clears throat> uh, I, I want honestly, to join your group well I guess we have no choice come with us <laughs> <laughs> completely skip over all that uh, struggle and all yeah. that Tension. Is there any indication as to like where in production this was when the film came out? Um, it was before the film came out, several months before. Uh, apparently, they, uh, if you listen to the commentary, they said, that bit about, but the effects were good, that was something that, the actors put yeah. in. They didn't do that, that wasn't their fault. They, no. They, that was no way in reference to the Shyamalan trouble. That, I can't think of any other... That The only way that joke works, <laughs> like or makes any sense is if it's a light little jab at the film. Yeah. So, like, well, yeah. At the time, oh. the film was several months from coming out. But they had to have seen it. At least what it's going to look like. Uh, they may have seen dailies or what was going on on set, but... I think they probably read the script and thought... <laughs> oh. Ah. Ah. Let's not put words into their mouths, but uh, yeah. I will say they're very diplomatic about the film when when they they talk about it. At least in this sort of previous, sort of, sort of before it's coming out, they're not going. We've seen that film; it's a piece of crap. 
Yeah, I mean they've got they they work for a company. They've got to kind of yeah. like they sort, yeah. sort of got to toe the line, but still like you wouldn't know anything about that, would you, Dan? Uh huh. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I can't imagine that line being included for any other reason, honestly. So. Speaking yes. of the effects, I, I actually really love the, the Ember Island players' uh, oddball little sort of yes. theatrical effects and, and using paper and streamers and fire-coloured <laughs> plastic to... Oh, probably not plastic. And fire-coloured materials to, uh, you know, to great effect. It's, I would love to see this play. Wait, <laughs> is, is Jet dead? I don't know. They don't really. About that. <laughs> yeah. that, that was, was really unclear. Earlier, wasn't yeah. it? <laughs> the floating yeah. rock is... <laughs> I, I also like that some of the details they get wrong are details, of course, that they would get wrong because no one knows that Zuko yeah. and the Blue Spirit are not the same person. Yeah. They should yeah. at least know that it was Zhao, not Zuko, that captured the Avatar at that point, though. They, well, they, they were alarmingly accurate on so much. that I, I was actually thinking that there's going to be a revelation at the end that this was all information that was passed to them by Azula and her various spies. Well, actually, it, was, it all came from a... Remarkably well-informed cabbage salesman. Cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> including the cabbage salesman, but yeah. But there were things where no one was present. For yeah. example, um, uh, when uh, Katara and uh, Zuko were alone in the, uh, the chambers beneath uh, Ba Sing Se, no one was there for that, and they, they knew. So it's, it's, uh, maybe it's just the power of Ember Island. I don't know. But no, nope. I, like so. I like to believe that the cabbage salesman was stalking these people. <laughs> Just to get his own back after all of those cabbages were destroyed. I hope he's getting a good kickback from the environment. Dan, do you have amateur dramatics where you are? Um, wait, what do you mean by amateur dramatics? Like, uh, um, like a community theatre. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. Those exist. This, this is exactly that. Well, I, Sharon, do you remember seeing Romeo and Juliet that one time? Uh, no. Were you not there for that? <laughs> With the Welsh monk... <laughs> oh, God. Tunbridge Wells, yes, yes, oh, I do remember that. That that's that bit where uh, Juliet had just had a remarkably moving death scene and then twitched her knee because her skirt had fallen up too far and she didn't <laughs> want anyone to see her pants. <laughs> like, basically, Juliet was... Um like flinging herself about like ridiculously overacting and um, the guy playing Makusho he was like, throwing himself into it he was roaring as loud as he could to the stools and um, I, had, I had to bite my lip and my, my shoulders were going up and down like a paint mixer while I tried not because then when they stopped shouting there's silence and you could hear people sniggering in the crowd so <laughs> I didn't want to be one of those guys sniggering but that is exactly the same feeling I got from this this, this sort of sense of people who aren't actually trained actors, but they've seen actors do their thing, and they sort of fling themselves about the stage, overacting wildly, and, and at the same time charge £14 a ticket. Yep. <laughs> Seriously? You, you, you can't act and I'm playing £14 for this? Is this the um, show where Suki first learns that uh, Sokka had a bit of a romantic... With the like, moon... The it kissed the moon, basically. <laughs> it is. And uh, I, I actually yeah. think Sokka's uh, response there is a bit... It's done for laughs. I actually think that that might cut a little bit deep mm. for Sokka. He's like, I'm yeah. just trying to listen to it. But it's, you know, it's kind of like if, if you start thinking about, oh my God, this is really hurting Sokka at this point. It's okay for Zuko, but for some reason with, with Sokka, it's, this is not something that's going to go away. 
Princess Yue is going to stick with him every time he looks up at the night sky. And then you get the, the finale where not only Zuko but Aang die at the hands of the Fire Lord and uh, Azula in uh, mirrors of the actual final confrontations. Only it's Fire Nation propaganda. So they're making these guys out to be bumbling bozo traitors, not heroes. It's weird then that uh, Fire Lord Ozai is far more of a Saturday morning cartoon villain <laughs> in this play than he ever ever is during this entire series it's kind of it's odd that like Azula and the Fire Lord are meant to be the heroes in this play but they still (laughs) portray them as these over the top monsters Maybe the playwright just ha- does have a bit of Greek in them, and then there's a little bit of kind of social, you know, political satire yeah. in there as well. Nobody really comes off brilliantly in this, do they? No, except for Toph. The next four episodes are Sozin's Comet, parts one through four, The Phoenix King, The Old Masters, Into the Inferno, and Avatar Aang. So rather than just doing one in turn, let's just sort of roughly go through the confluence of events. It starts off with they're on Ember Island and uh, they're relaxing and they decide, ah, you know what, let's face the Fire Lord later and, uh, you know, because we're never going to do it while he's uh, super powerful. And Zuko has to do the rude awakening, the very rude awakening. He destroyed Sucker's sand sculpture of Suki. <laughs> oh, and oh, he attacked Dang. <laughs> See, I'm actually kind of, although he did it in a, in a really heavy handed way, I'm really glad that Zuko um, kind of, you know, lit the fire up under them. For a start, I mean, the, they had to do this because otherwise the Earth Nation would have been wiped out. Yeah. Followed swiftly, I'm sure, by the uh, the water tribes, but um, the, they seem content to just train for the rest of their lives. At this point, they're like, you know, we're never going to be tough enough to beat this guy, so let's just just put it off for a bit longer and keep putting it off and keep putting it off. Because who could possibly confront that without the impetus of if we don't do this, then thousands of people will die. You've got to imagine Zuko's frustration because. The thing that made him truly decide to join up with with the team Avatar was being in that meeting mm. and knowing what will happen when the comet comes and find out the fact that these peop- the people who are supposed to be serving the world are taking it easy and planning to do this after all that's happened. Yeah. Truly gets to him. What are you going to do when you actually do face my father? He's a pacifist through and through. He does not want to take a life even while everybody around him is telling him that he needs to. Well, part one and two of Sozin's Comet, uh, Aang's journey is discovering exactly what kind of actions he's going to have to take to take out um, Fire Lord Ozai. He's very much been a very evasive, 
um, not one to engage in conflict up until this point. And now he's put in a situation where all his friends are telling him, you've got to kill the Fire Lord, you don't have a choice. Um, and they do that uh, tr- training uh, exercise where they have the Melon Lord. I am Melon Lord! <laughs> which is really funny. Lord. <laughs> Even just the representation of Fire Lord Ozai, um, Aang is unwilling to take him out, unwilling to kill him, he, because he's been trained all his life by his monk, you know, the monks and the airbenders, that this is wrong. We always find another way. We don't take life. Oh, you, you also get that wonderful um, moment where it's the picture of uh, the Fire Lord as a baby, and Zuko says, that's not me, that's my father. And it, it does underline that uh, despite everything he's done, he was just like us, a completely helpless, innocent baby at one point, before a Zulon came along and messed him up good. Um, I don't know what you... you I don't want to get too political on the Avatar. No, no, podcast, get political, seriously. But um, personally, I'm very much a, against the uh, death penalty, simply because... Yeah. I hold the belief that society has to be better than the individual. Um, I have less of a problem with a mother going into a murderer's home and killing the guy who murdered their child than the government themselves or an agent of justice killing somebody. For me, I feel like justice needs to be better than that individual person doing something for personal reasons. And at the Avatar is a symbol of balance and a symbol of justice. And so I think it makes sense that Aang takes that approach where it's more about... It, it's, it's not about revenge and it's not about personal vendettas. It's about creating balance. It's about bringing things back to the way it should be. And you don't have to do that by slaughtering people. But yeah. Roku does make the point that he has to be decisive. Oh, absolutely. And that yeah. something absolutely has to be done. He makes absolutely the right choice in the end. That does make a lot of sense, though, because if the Avatar um, made a, a habit of dealing out the death penalty, in effect, to anybody who transgressed, then the, the position of Avatar would very quickly become corrupted. Yeah, yeah. Anyone else on the politics? Because unlike a lot of other podcasts, I am fine with politics being brought into this one. No, I had um, the exact same conversation with a friend the other day, and my view is pretty much the same as Josh's. Mm-hmm. He was saying that he doesn't believe in an eye for an eye, he doesn't believe in the death penalty whatsoever, but in the way that Josh said, I actually said to him, well, you've got kids, what if someone murdered your child? You just stand by and hope that he doesn't get a certain amount of time in prison. If, and if, the way I'd, I explain it is, if somebody murdered my child, I don't have children, but hypothetically, if I had children, if somebody murdered them, I'd want to kill that guy, and I'd probably, if I had the chance, kill him. But then I would go to prison and happily serve time for the crime I've committed. It's I just very- don't think the government should be the ones who are doing that. That shouldn't yeah. be a law. Well, he was trying to argue that once you give the government the power to kill people, things can get a lot worse. Well, that, that's my argument. I think the go- it, you get on a slippery slope if you give any government the power to kill its own citizens. So it's better to just not have it at all.
I think at this point, Aang leaves, doesn't he? he Not intentionally. He basically, the island calls to him. Yeah. And he sleepwalks to it. We get to see Ko again. Yeah. We do get to see Ko. This is interesting because um, is he, he must still be in the Four Nations when the, the lion turtle goes off. But um, June says he doesn't exist anymore. It's in the spirit world at that point. He's I not, think there's though. a strong. No, he's not. They make oh, a no. uh, make a firm point that he tries to do airbending and, and succeeds. I believe it's a situation of what the lion turtle is. It's pure energy, and you can't. It's you can't track something that's being enveloped by that energy. Right. It's as if he's. It's it's as if he's disappeared from this. He's like it's gone to the spirit world while still being well, on this plane. I felt that the there was a strong implication that the lion turtle is very much connected with the spirit world. Yeah. And maybe it's a similar situation with the koi fish, mm. where it's a spirit, something that used to be a spirit that's taken the form of this giant lion turtle. Basically, the... I'll go into this deeper but later, but the lion turtle predates the avatar. He was there at the beginning... Yeah, it's one of the most ancient creatures on the uh, of the Four Nations at this point. The Iron Turtles, uh, the green light, teaches him what he's going to be doing later on. Energy bending. I do really love, and uh, this is kind of getting toward the end as well, but that everything points Aang, even every single avatar he talks to, even the airbender says that it seems to just directly imply that killing is the only thing he can do. But, I, but even despite that, that he... Still, still finishes it in his own way. As I think, I think that's maybe my favorite thing about the ending of this whole series. Oh, so that he doesn't, he, he doesn't compromise that. Yeah. It takes a being older than the Avatar itself to teach and show Aang that there is a way to do this without killing. Yes, but it's the very fact that Aang comes out of the Avatar state to perform the final act. Just stops it, just in time. What the lion turtle said about once upon a time we were energy benders and, mm. um, you know, the idea that they, they bent their, effectively their chi, that's what he's talking about. Um, I, I had a theory that how the element bending came about might have been that as more humans started to bend, um, as opposed to just the animals, and having um, an imposed a more conscious... Uh, approach to it that they may have started to divide it out into the elements so that they could have done specific things with it and that upset the balance of, of the energy as it was supposed to be and so the avatar came to be in order to bring all of those elements back together again as they were supposed to be um, to give people an example of what they were sort of aiming for what they were working towards I think we should talk about what Zuko, uh, Katara, Sokka and Toph are doing at this point as yeah. well. Um, they, instead of trying to track down uh, Aang, they tried to track down Iroh. And we get... Oh no, hey, you missed out June. I mean, we mentioned her just briefly before, but uh, it, it was nice to have Jennifer Hale come back. And yeah. I, I suppose they figured, look, we're getting her back for Kyoshi, let's have June as well. June's never been the most complex character, let's be honest. She's Hell just no. kind of cool. Um, and and that monster that she uh, I forget Shishu. 
the sheer shoe yeah. is a really cool design. So it was a nice callback. Um, there are a lot of characters in this finale that call back to earlier seasons, like uh, Boomy and that lot. And it was great seeing who the uh, who the main members of the White Lotus were. And there was all these grand masters that we got to see all the way through the last three seasons. I love the bit with Boomy there. It's like, there's someone really important missing from your group. Where's Momo? Where's Momo? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! I knew it was only a matter of time! Alpha 8, Momo! Momo, I'm coming for you, buddy! The implication that there's been a network of highly powerful people from all different nations always coordinating is really interesting to me, and I'd love to see some more exploration of what the White Lotus is at some point. Yeah. Or at least what it was. It obviously pertains to the balance of things, but where where their origin actually came from is definitely a story I hope they go into in, yeah. in Korra. Is it possible that they might have some um, role in locating the Avatar? Because they do later. Mm. That's true. I don't know if my ears were playing up, but uh, when Zuko's talking to Iroh and he says, Uncle, you're the only person other than the Avatar who can possibly defeat the Father Lords... Yes, yeah, he does say he that. Say that. Yeah. And, and Toph picks up on it. Sorry, just to rewind a bit, because um, we just skipped over it. Um, when the best Zuko, bit, yeah. Yeah, Zuko confronts his uncle is possibly yeah. the most emotional scene in the entire series. If anyone doesn't well up during this yeah. scene, you are a heartless monster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's so mm. perfectly done. And when brilliant. Zuko is desperately trying to apologise to Iroh, and then Iroh just hugs him. He's like, shut up, Zuko. I love you. Come here. Give me a hug. It's, it was perfect. Yeah. And huge props to Dante Basco there for, for delivering that speech and holding in the emotion, but knowing that it's, he's riven with it at that point. It's excellent. Really wonderful. I liked also that Iroh said... You got here on your own. You didn't need me. You're here because of your own inner strength. And I thought that was a great lesson for Zuko to learn about himself. That he doesn't need Iroh. Iroh's there to guide him, but he has that power within himself. Oh, by the way, the Shishu's name is Nyla. That's a totally useless bit of information there. Um, I think it's named after Iroh. somebody on staff. Judy, the actual character model, is based on Mick and Lee Wong, one of the animation producers. It would be a producer, wouldn't it? <laughs> they should have brought Judy back for this final. Should have. She should have been the end boss. Well, she is kind of in charge of bossing say at this point. Yeah, I'm Judy. <laughs> Sorry, off off the rails. Right, uh, let's go back. They they make the plans and um, we get into um, Azula's breakdown. Oh. Yeah, you know what? Hold that back for the the okay. bit with with uh, Zuko. We'll we'll wrap that all into one package. Let's talk about just we'll do the Barsing say bit first because it's actually kind of the least important bit. Yeah, I mean it's important from a historical point of view. Uncle Iroh he had a vision as a child that he would take Barsing say one day. As it turns out, he's taking it back for the Earth Kingdom from the Fire Nation. And and you just get a really good scene with uh, with a couple of exceptionally powerful benders and a swordmaster. Uh, Zhang Zhang. And yeah, Zhang Zhang's back again. Can I just say how 
they introduce when this, the comet's actually coming down, everybody can feel it, and it shows Iroh just breathing in, the fire coming up and down with his breath. Oh, yeah, and it's, yeah, it sort of breathes outwards with him, yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. And then they, uh, they, they take back the city from a bunch of firebenders, and it's, it's impressive. It's very, very uh, uh, epic, this one part. Maybe the airship's next? Yeah. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah. Is it just me? Or when it starts panning out and across and showing you all of these airships, does the frame rate go a little bit judder, a little bit just bringing to mind Final Fantasy VII specifically when they start to show you the high wind in all its glory after the uh, after you get off the John and Cannon bit? That I can tell you why that is. Yeah, go. That is an effect of those uh, models of the airships are actually 3D models shaded to look like 2D, but because all the 2D animation is happening on twos, as like so like every other frame, it would look weird if it was really super smooth 24 frames per second 3D animation and then 2D frame sort of thing. So they're trying to blend it, so it you get kind of a weird hybrid look there. Okay. <laughs> Did that make any sense? Yes, the yeah. animation okay. genius has spoken. Uh, I know I, 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 that that pretty much made sense. They they animated, um, they painted three D models to look like two D models. Yes. Um, okay. Can I just say this is one of the funniest moments happens in this when Sokka convinces the airship to land because he convinces the them to go into the bomb bay. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to celebrate someone's birthday. I can't believe the captain remembered my birthday. <laughs> no, even before that, just the two people. Hi, I'm from communication. <laughs> hey, from engineering. Oh, that's probably why we don't see each other so much. Again, crucial um, humani- humanifying? Humanifying! See, we're all making up words tonight. Okay, hang on. Again, crucial humanizing of the Fire Nation. You're like, you know what? These guys are all right. I don't really want to see them all trashed. Fire Lord needs to take him down. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, yes. They're invading on this guy's birthday, man. Oh, even in the wa- having to work on your birthday. Yeah. <laughs> and even in the water, they're just sitting there like, well, yeah. happy birthday. Birthday. <laughs> We get to see Toph really advanced. Advance her uh, metal bending skills because before it seemed like she had to be in direct contact with any metal she was bending, but now she formed this armor around her and mm. she's bending the metal in the environment mu- in much the same way she'd bend earth. And it's showing her really improve in that particular skill. And being able to take out all those firebenders in that one room as well as this nice final badass moment for Toph. It must have been terrifying for that one guy when she was crawling on the wall, just heading towards him and he didn't have anything he could do. That looks so creepy as well. (laughs) And they got it right. She didn't have her eye off or anything. Again, this was this tragic moment that... um, uh, Sokka lost his space sword but I was I was really worried throughout all of this because it makes perfect sense that during all of this action and all of this this danger someone's going to get killed so I was you know uh, I, my heart was in my throat I was like don't be tough don't be Sokka don't be Suki and ah uh, you got to remember they don't know that Aang, they think Aang's gone yeah so they've basically taken this on themselves to stop this war there's a, a really nice moment with Toph where they're, they're in control of the airship and they're about to 
ram the ship into all the other ones. But the uh, Fire Nation ships have just started their attack, and you see this big wall of fire. And mm. Toph is staring at this big wall of fire. She can't see it, but she can just feel the heat coming yeah. off of it. And she just goes, whoa, that's a lot of fire, isn't it? And it just that she doesn't even have to see it. She can feel it from that distance. It's got that kind of um, blowtorch sound to, to the... Um, it's like the deforesti- deforestization. It's like deforesting with something that's like a surgical precision flame tool to just strip away the landscape and the people underneath when they finally got there. I, I don't know whether the Fire Lord was planning to just crisscross the landscape and just fly back and forwards and back and forwards, meeting no resistance... But he's out of his tree, clearly. Mm-hmm. I noticed that, too. The, the blowtorch sort of sound to the fire that they added around this episode really lends it, like, some... It really sounds powerful. Yeah. Like, more so, more so than even before. It, you, I, I noticed it in the uh, Azula Zuko fight later as well. It just really sounds sounds dangerous. Industrial precision. I love yeah. the mobility that this is given to the firebending. The fact that they are actually hovering and flying all over the place, signifying just how strong their flames actually become to the point where they it's so intense they can fly. We already know that Ozo is mental. Mm. He's already announced himself as the Phoenix King of the Land before he's actually even taken over anything. Mm. And, uh, and he's only been Fire Lord six years, so when did that get boring? He's obsessed with his own image. It, it seems that... Sozin's original concept was to... Well, his original concept was to spread the wealth and happiness of the Fire Nation across all lands. Well, okay, Ozai, I don't know how you were expecting to do that by killing everyone in every other nation, but... Yeah. yeah. He, it's more about making this, you know, making himself into a legend in much the same way that Amaral Zhao was trying to do in the first season. To a degree, then, he, he becomes less of an interesting villain than Azula. When it cuts to Azula and she starts to really crack, all of the flames in the, um, the Fire Lord's uh, main chamber have gone from red to blue, which is her signature colour, and she starts banishing everyone. It starts off with a cherry that uh, had the pit left in it. I don't know, she was being merciful there, so the implication is that she was going to execute that girl. She's already had Ty Lee and May disgraced, and then she brings in her non-firebending mentors and effectively banishes them both by being vague. Which is a great moment. Sorry, These God. are the miserable, dried-up old women who uh, told her that she had one hair out of place and that she wasn't quite good enough. But even they clearly have some humanity from what they were uh, talking about on in the beach episode. Oh, that was but, gross. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they even say that they are worried about her. Mm. Really, Tylee and, and May turning on her and her dominating people through fear not working is causing her to doubt and second-guess everybody around her, one by one. Yeah, The Daily The Daily included. It's now just yeah. like, if her best friends, who she's known since childhood, and have, if even they will turn on her, suddenly she doubts everyone, and okay. just drives herself insane through paranoia. And also, she's enacting her um, 
deepest fears about how she was perceived by her mother as well. If she is a that monster, well. then she deserves to be alone, and she's basically fulfilling that for herself. Um, one of the key scenes of this is when she actually goes to try and leave with her father on the conquest, and she, he tells her to stay behind, but she perceives this as he thinks she's become so weak that she's no longer of use anymore. Don't treat me like Zuko. Yeah. yeah. You really get a sense that she's still very much this damaged little girl. Yeah. And the way that she, her complete, you, the way you get to see her hallucinating her own mother, telling her that what she's always thought is actually a lie. Well, the, the armor she's built around herself has just crumbled away at this point, and we're seeing exactly who she is underneath. And Zuko, uh, later on, sees that exactly that as well. He sees that this big wall that she's built around her has gone, and all that's left is this miserable little crazy girl. Yeah, she oh, does she... seem younger for the first time. Yeah. I mean, there's a bit in the beach where she seems younger, but this is the time when she actually seems like a child. There's a bit where she even gets to the point that her hair won't do what she wants, so she cuts mm. it off. Yeah. Crazy. And that's, like her, that's her signature hair. That's how we knew she was Azula when uh, she turned up dressed as one of the Kyoshi Warriors at the end of the... Uh, First series, it's, it's it is <laughs> it is a very very common um, psychological um, visual cue, um, particularly in women. If they are something's not right in their head, they will do something to their hair to make it look wrong or just different or something drastic. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And also her lipstick. They've always pronounced mm. um, her, her lips, but it's like she's got too much lipstick on at this point, and her mouth becomes much more of a twisted grimace. Whereas before it was sort of like perfect, if cruel. When Zuko fights Azula, it is the Fire Nation at war with itself. The greedy, perfection-obsessed, oppressive side throwing itself against the determined humanitarian core. As Team Avatar have discovered, the Fire Nation are not evil, and especially the children among them, need guidance from adults seeking harmony with, rather than dominance over, the other nations. But as Iroh said, he himself could not simply take out the Fire Lord. History would see it as yet another power play from a family wrought with treachery. Aang's destiny is to take him down, emblematic of nature correcting the imbalance caused by Aang's absence from the world. And Zuko cannot be the one to defeat Azula, although he absolutely must face her. Their fire burns so brightly when it clashes that there can be no harmonious ending. Instead it takes fire's opposite in the form of Katara to neutralize the effects of Azula's burning and lightning attacks, and in the same manner as her student and teacher Aang, simply bind and render ineffective this out-of-control firestorm. I didn't feel sorry for Azula the first time I saw this episode and grinned at her screams of frustration, but yesterday they got to me, and I felt a great stab of sorrow for this pampered and abused creature, unable to empathise and forcing shut every door of humanity left open to her. Time will tell if Aang and Katara's mercy may reap positive or negative outcomes for Ozai and Azula in later episodes of Korra.
is an awful lot in this series about the expectations that are placed on children Mm. and particularly the expectations of how they fit into the adult society that they're going to grow into and it's it's actually quite intriguing when you see how the whole pattern fits together but you've got the expectations that were placed on Aang for being the avatar Katara having to take over the maternal role within her family uh, Sokka having to take over the, the warrior position when he was the, the oldest male left in, in the tribe yeah. you've got May expected to be this very controlled person because um, you know she can't do anything out of place Azula expected to be cruel and vicious because she saw very early in life that that's what her father responded to um, Zuko expected to behave a certain way and then castigated when he doesn't it, it just it goes yeah, on forgot it. Toph and Toph, Toph expected yeah, this, this fragile little creature because yeah. she's that, that that's all her parents can estimate of and her. she has to remove herself from that scenario when she can't she isn't allowed to, to go beyond that I think actually she has I think I mentioned this to you before she's, she grew up in a scenario very similar to May's but at a very, very young age, she found the badger moles, and they gave her a window to be who she really was. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons why Toph is so at ease with herself, because from a very early on, she's had that um, aspect of herself that's been allowed to grow and be nurtured um, by the badger moles. That's in the runaway, isn't it? Yes. That episode, yeah. It's worth mentioning at this point that... Um Michael and Brian fought very hard to get live strings for the music in this four-part finale. And during the fight with uh, Zuko and Azula, rather than the kind of heavy percussion, upbeat sort of thing that would normally be happening, there's actually a very kind of softer, mournful string piece playing that uh, really, really makes it an emotionally wrought fight. I mean, it's one of the most amazing fights in the entire series. But it, like that musical choice was fantastic. There's an overarching feeling that this is a fight that shouldn't be happening. Yes, I. And, uh, oh, go uh, no, go go, Dan. You you're always more interesting than me. <laughs> That's not true. What? Okay, just for that, you're going first. Yeah. Um, the bit where uh, Zuko uh, tries to get Azula to strike him with lightning is like, come on, I dare you, get me with lightning. Uh, I bet you're afraid that I can redirect it at you. And she's like, oh, okay, I'm going to get you of lightning. Then her eyes suddenly twitch to uh, Katara, and she maliciously fires lightning straight at her. Um, You know, this is who Azula is. She never, ever... um, She's not honourable in any way. She's agreed to this traditional fight that's part of Fire Nation culture, the Agni Kai, and she's just broken the rules again. Um, Zuko's willingness to just throw himself in front of the lightning, even though he knows exactly what could happen if it goes wrong. Uh, He does manage to get rid of some of that electricity. Uh, You see it fire off into the sky. But I think it's suggested that some of it did pass through his heart. And he's close to death at that moment. It it was really scary seeing, and because I, I, I actually thought that Zuko might actually die out of all the characters in the show who could die, I thought Zuko might have been the one. Yeah. This is a, a very tense fight because uh, it, not only could Zuko have died, I I figured at that point that Katara might die. Yeah. yeah. So, 
that um, that that would be the ultimate outcome. It would, that she would end up with neither Ang nor Zuko, and that she would be the the person sacrificed. I am kind of amazed that everybody lived. It's it's in keeping with Ang's desperate need to have nobody die. But um, I think it's sort of the embodiment of your connections keep you strong. And I think it also works because the victory in the end is so hard won. Like, there have been so many times these, this group has lost that yeah. when they do finally win, when the odds are finally against them, it's there doesn't need to be a loss to sour that. It's like they finally did it. They finally pulled it off. And I was with you. Like, I thought Katara might be dead there, because after seeing that massive fight that those two had just had, and now there's nothing between Katara and Azula, uh, I was that's that was really intense threatening. And I loved seeing Katara's creative salute, like method of victory. That would have been where they finally capture her, tie her up, and she just throws a massive hysterical rage fit. Specifically when she finds out that Zuko is going to live. It's very sad, I, though. Yeah, yeah. that's that's the point that I... You know, the first destroyed. time I was like, ha-ha. But the second, the second time yesterday, I, was, I, I really felt... You poor, wretched creature. It was, it's, it's similar to the feelings I got for Gollum. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. It, it's... It's this person who's very much a victim of their circumstances. If she was born into a different family, if Zuko and Azula were born into uh, a, a similar family well, situation if, as if, Katara and Sokka, maybe they would have turned out very differently. If she'd been a bit of a mummy's girl instead of a daddy's girl. Yeah. No, at the very least, if just their mother would have still been around, yeah. things would have turned out very different. That's true. true. Do we find out what happens to Azula after? Because I know we see uh, Ozohi in the prison. She's, she's basically sent to a mental institution, but I think they're going to come back to it in Korra. Yeah. Okay. Apparently, Grey Delisle has been cast as someone named the Dark Spirit Ooh. in season two of Korra. Read into that whatever you wish, folks. <laughs> I will wait to be surprised. person that I was fairly certain might actually end up losing their life was Aang. When he fights the uh, Fire Lord, it's it's again a very somber fight. It's 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 spectacular, but you're not just like, oh this is this is awesome, there's so many things happening. It's it's supposed to be a case of, of worrying very deeply about the actual lead character there. Um this fight kind of reminds me of a conversation we were having about Iron Man 2, in that that final confrontation, nothing's touching Iron Man and War Machine. They're badasses and they're perfect, and the yeah. fight works out exactly the way they want. The yep. reason why this fight is so great is because Aang's on the ropes for mm-hmm. most of this fight. Yeah. At any second, Fire Lord Ozai could have actually killed him and taken him out. And it's so tense 
uh, especially when he starts firing lightning and they're getting yeah. so close. To, in fact, he lands a hit. Luckily, uh, Ang's able to redirect it. And that's, that's a scene mm. I really like as well, where Ang yeah. has that opportunity to take Ozai's, Ozai's life. He considers it. He thinks about it for two seconds, but then decides not to. Yeah. It's quite ironic that Ozai pushing him his scar back onto the rock that causes him to go into the Avatar state as well. Yeah. Where he unlocks it. It's his that, own fault. That call back to the fact that that lightning strike that Azula gave him, it sort of knotted up that chakra. Yeah. And it took that shot to get it back. And you get to see the fury of an Avatar. Yeah. It's it's really um, cool because uh, when he's in the Avatar state, it's almost like he's mocking Ozai. Because before mm-hmm. Ozai and Ang have a fight, Ozai shows off by you know firing fire in all directions. And then when Ang goes into the Avatar state, he does the exact same thing, but on a much <laughs> larger scale, yeah. as if to say, "You think you're a badass? You haven't seen anything yet." At um, that point, ooh. you start to see how foolish the uh, Fire Lord was in pitching himself against the Avatar. Just this raw force of nature that he is that dwarfs him in scale. I don't know if we've mentioned it as well, but I love when he's in the Avatar state and speaks. It's the voices of all the past Avatars mixed together. Yeah. I love that. But just in the fight, the fact that he surrounds himself with all the elements and he compacts the rocks and uses those as sort of projectiles. That The whole fight is definitely one of the best in the whole yeah. series, hands down. And then his actual... It's, it's still nail-biting up to the final moment, because when he starts to take back the firebending, and he's got his thumb planted on Ozai's forehead, and there's this incredible cosmic event happening, the idea was that their souls were supposed to be turned inside out, and they had to represent that with colour. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, that's another moment where you think... Ang might not make it then. Yeah, but the, not only that Ang might not make it, but that um, he his entire uh, his being, mm. his soul might be corrupted, and that might extend to the Avatar Force itself, and that this could be it for the Avatar Force. And they hold it back to the last eye iris worth of light. And when you see it, how it finally ends, of course it was going to end happily, and of course he was going to end victoriously. But it keeps you sort of going, oh my god, no, up to that last second, and it really. They sell you a, a genuine sense of jeopardy and danger. And you could see it going another way in a different world. When I um, watched this scene for the first time, I was slightly worried about what they were going to do. Because at this point, I didn't know that Ang was simply going to take away Fire Lord, uh, Fire yeah. Lord Ozai's bending. You when did, they yeah. had the whole red light, blue light, and the blue light overcoming the red light, I was slightly scared that they were going to do the crappy storytelling technique of um, Ang bending Ozai's spirit so he's a good person after all. <laughs> just, because, just because the imagery kind of evoked that to me, kind of the blue overcoming the red. Obviously, oh. that's not how it plays out, and what Ang has actually done is effectively neutered Ozai, uh, <laughs> just removed... Well, yeah, you know... Too brave. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what he's done. 
um, and has removed his uh, capacity to hurt anyone, which I thought was a great way to end the series because Aang gets to keep his morals. He's done exactly what he needs to do, but he hasn't sacrificed his principles. Yeah. I've been trying to convince someone to watch this all day, and I just kept saying that pretty much that is perfection, the way they ended that. Oh, I couldn't think of any better way. And it's almost worse than uh, killing Ozai because after yeah. that he gets totally humiliated by everyone else. He's just this. At this point, he's nothing. He's just this slob who <laughs> collapses on the floor and has Toph and Sokka insulting him and calling him names. It's like this once powerful person is now just a, dep- a depressing and pitiful sight. Although I do like the fact that they still jail him. Yeah. It's not a case of okay, he's he's not even worthy of, of yeah exactly he's completely harmless. We're just going to dress him in rags and let him wander the world as a, a mad old gimmer who waffles onto people about how once upon a time he was the phoenix king. He's still a perfectly healthy mid thirties chap. Well, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, chuck him in jail, let him rot. Well, yeah, I, I imagine he'd still wield some political power of the people as well. Yeah. So if they let him out there to, you know, form his own rebellion, as you will, um, it could have gotten really bad. But I think they made the right choice. goes to see him when he says where's my mother that's a bit where I thought maybe the story's going to carry on a bit more soon if you read the comic books called The Promise you apparently will find out what happens to uh, Zuko's mother and what you know what happened there and I, I would imagine they're going to incorporate some of that into a, a Korra storyline later on because there are mm. 40 episodes incoming of that series and the way and that they they preface it at the very start of the series of Korra. You can yeah, yeah. whatever happened to Zuko's mother? Well, yeah. it starts like... Click. Yeah. yeah. But they've already expressed that they really love the episodes like uh, the Avatar and the Fire Lord where you go back and it, it, it illuminates characters histories and exp- it deepens them and, and explains other side stories that give the, the world much more of a, of a sense of texture. Obviously we've got to move forwards but there's so much to explore and I am really excited. I don't think I've been this excited about a TV show ever. Okay, right, so that, that concludes The Legend of Aang. I think we're going to finish there and we'll be back next week for The Legend of Korra. And there are no finals, no full stops, no endings, because this is going to go and go and run and run, and I am so happy about that. 
Uh, but this uh, in itself is uh, number one on my list of top ten animated shows. It's going to take a lot to actually unseat it. I think only Korra actually has the yeah. ability to do that right now. I'd just like to add that although Avatar isn't my favourite TV show of all time, I really felt like this finale was so perfect and it delivered everything that the fans wanted and, and it it really paid off emotionally. It's, it's probably the best finale I've ever seen. I'd agree with that. So few shows get to finish at all, but to finish this spectacularly and to finish with this kind of sense of resounding closure like if there'd never been a Korra this would have been a wonderful three season show the fact that it goes on is just an immense bonus for everyone who loves it I like the very last bit how it all wraps up with Iroh getting his tea shop up and running again Mm. and obviously Katang finally yes how could we not say (laughs) the speculation for a long time about Katara and Zuko uh, getting together, which a lot of the people who are fans there really rooting for that to happen. But May made it very clear that Zuko is never to break up with her again. I think it decided to end on the perfect note as well because it could have gone on. That ending could have gone on a much uh, much longer because they could have gone d- gone Return down of the, the whole king on us. Return of the King, like <laughs> and Katara and Ang lived oh. happily ever after, and they had children and all this other stuff. No. It ends with them kissing, cut to credits. I think that's a perfect way to end. say thank you very very much to my guests as we go uh daniel floyd do you want to pimp your show and say where you're from i will try i'm from a show called extra credits on penny arcade tv we talk about video games uh, the game industry things that could be improved ways that uh the medium can be moved forward very true do you want to tell us about pixar oh yeah i also work at pixar <laughs> we we make films I, I i've seen one or two of them they're quite good they're all right um, you can find me over at CanaanRinse.com. Uh, we have a podcast that focuses on one game or a series of games, dissects them and discusses them in detail. Uh, you can also find interesting reviews and articles on the site. And you can also find the animation archives at GonzoPlanet.com. Uh, one is on this series that we've been talking about, and one is on My Neighbor Totoro, and the next one is coming soon. And Sharon, thank you very much for coming on again. Thank you. And Jerome. No worries. And Dwayne. Thank you very much. And we're going to finish on the wonderful finale music from Avatar, The Legend of Aang. We will see you next week for a whole other Avatar, Legend of Korra. Avatar State, yip yip.
Flamio, sir. <laughs> Flamio. Flamio. <laughs> Thank you, Hopman.